Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, September 28th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Morning, Freehold. Um, so, so the Braves are now in a dead heat. First of all, sports section brought to you by Bird of a Thousand Gods. Um, <laughs> the Braves are now in a flat-footed tie. Oh, I didn't notice. With the New York Mets. They, they are? Um, oh. They've got one game with the Nationals tonight, three with the Mets. We expect, uh, as scheduled, one Friday, one Saturday, one Sunday. It would not surprise me if the hurricane were to not bob as far to the east as they some believe. I listened to something this morning coming over, and it was a guy from um, from Florida at a television station, and he said that um, that 48 hours out, they are completely and totally uncertain. I mean, they just don't know that there are there are models that having it, you know, kind of skirting Atlanta. There are other models that have it going out into the Atlantic Ocean and kind of coming back on somewhere around the North Carolina, South Carolina state line or border. Um, who knows? And the reason, Ref, from what I'm gathering, maybe you've read something different, there's this this front that has a shearing effect they think will um, obviously slow the storm down, make it a bit weaker, but will have a tremendous effect or influence on steering it. And, you know, when does it exactly run into this steering front? Nobody knows. I mean, that's the, the matter of uncertainty. And um, we'll hopefully have Andrew Dockery or Jamie Arnold with us at some point this morning to get some um, some clarity mm-hmm. as to what their latest models are saying. And we obviously know it's it's had effects on high school football games for Friday, college games uh, for this weekend. Obviously, the game well, I, mean, I know it's had an tomorrow. effect on a college game. I don't yeah. know about college games. Are there other college games that have been rescheduled? Uh, not that I've heard of. Can not I definitely. vent for a second? Can I vent for a second? Go for it. Okay. Is there any bigger Gamecock fan than I? I don't know. No, I mean, I, I'm about as big a Gamecock yep. fan. You're a bigger Braves fan than I probably a bigger Gamecock fan than you yep. are. Uh, than you are. Um, there's just something different about Clemson. The Gamecocks, the first notion of potential, you know, disarray, they cancel the games, reschedule the game, and I've heard everything from the Richland County Police side. They're further west than we are. But Clemson digs in. I mean, Clemson, yeah. I, I get game day, and I get ASPN. And I, no, I mean, it's just there, there's something different about that crowd of the upstate as opposed to the ones in the Midlands that I'm such a uh, a fan of. Uh, it's just, it's, I don't want to go down that road because I'll alienate or disassociate myself with people that I may need a favor from one day <laughs> when it comes to an extra ticket. Or, I think you've made your point, Or though. an extra parking pass. Well, I mean, you know, I, I was texting last night with some members of the officialdom of the university about, you know, why? Why decide this soon, this quick? I mean, we decided before Florida State did. I mean, Georgia and Georgia Tech are out of town. So I get that. I mean, it's not, you know, adversely affected by what the storm may or may not do. But we were the first, if I'm not mistaken, the University of South Carolina was the first team in America to reschedule the game because of a hurricane uh, hitting Tampa. The first I heard of. And a lot of uncertainty. I mean, you know, there there are squiggly lines that have it going out in the Atlantic. There are squiggly lines that have it go through downtown Greenville. I mean, you've seen all varieties right. of that model. But when the University of South Carolina was given an opportunity to say, hey, it's time to reschedule, they they take it. When, when Clemson has a chance to say, hey, do we reschedule or do we dig in and wait this thing out? They dig in and wait it out. Uh, it's just different. I mean, I'm telling you, it's just, you know, as a fan of the Gamecocks, they're at a tremendous disadvantage when it comes to what program will just dig in and wait it out to make sure they do right by their fans, their program, their university, 
Um, and maybe that's why you got a history of losing to one team and the other has a history of uh, beating the, the, the said team. So 843 <laughs> I'll let that be and leave that alone because I could get real aggressive, extremely aggressive. Here's what I'll say. I wish they had issued an apology on behalf of Don Staley like they rescheduled the football game. <laughs> Can I just go, leave it there? You had okay. to go there. Yeah. If, if they had been as proactive I hear you. in issuing a statement and apologizing for Don Staley and her ridiculously insane comments, then, then I could kind of, um, you know, we were first out of the gate to reschedule a football game with threatening weather. And I think I looked at the WIS weather forecast. When they made the announcement, the WIS, Columbia, South Carolina, Weather announcement said Saturday, windy, excuse me, rainy and breezy. So I guess now you can't play games in rainy or breezy weather. But but once again, let's give the university a tremendous amount of credit. They were proactive. Well, they and, were and extremely point, proactive in making the announcement. In fact, they were the first in America in proactively <laughs> announcing that they were going to reschedule the game to Thursday night. Now, now as a fan who kind of gets in the weeds, I'm, you know, I don't have a problem with giving the Gamecocks a couple of days extra to get ready for Kentucky. Right. You know, if you want to really be optimistic, yeah. but, but that's not the, I mean, that's not the deal you made with the fans. The deal you made with the fans is to try to play the games on Saturday if possible. And, and is it possible to play a game on Saturday? I don't know. But, but to your point yesterday, the resources it takes, the highway patrol, the sheriff's office, I mean, they will be available for whatever they need to do. Uh, across the state and in Richland County or wherever on Saturday because they won't be committed to the traffic control yeah, or whatever I, they do. I, I would imagine, you know. So that has to be considered. Okay, well, let's don't play games on rainy and breezy days anymore. I mean, that's the WIS forecast. You heard Jamie Arnold yesterday said he doubts very seriously anybody in the state of South Carolina would experience tropical force winds, right? But mm -hmm. that's his words, not mine. Um, so let's just, anytime there's a weather forecast, that says rainy and breezy, let's reschedule. Let's be proactive in rescheduling. I was looking at the latest uh, release from the National Hurricane Center. And, oh, when is this? Uh, when is the latest? The latest would this be morning five, or last night? 5 a.m. Okay, 5 a.m. Yep, uh, 5 a.m. So Tuesday, I'm sorry, Friday at 2 p.m., the center of the storm, it looks like the, the center is moving off the coast and coming up the, the coast of Georgia and will come right in at the South Carolina-Georgia border, which I guess is right about Savannah, as a tropical storm. Okay. Uh, and then it's a tropical depression. It looks like the center of the storm, and of course the effects, the wind and the rain go far from the center, uh, will be to the west of Columbia, sort of heading toward the upstate. That's the track as of now. As of now. As it gets as closer. That's 5 o'clock this morning. Yep. Okay, we'll see. So that's a little more easterly than yesterday morning, yep. right? I mean, yesterday morning it looked like it was heading kind of through the middle of the state. So today it's kind of the Georgia-South Carolina border um, as a tropical storm. And then it takes a westerly turn, so it swings to the east, and actually the, the eye of the storm looks like it goes out into the Atlantic at about Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And then straight north from there and then runs into at, at Savannah, maybe Hilton Head area, uh, and then kind of makes so a little westerly turn. So it's shifted a couple of hundred miles to the east today than it was yesterday. Yep. Let's hope it shifts another couple of hundred miles further east <laughs> and uh, and makes landfall somewhere. I mean, I don't want to make it landfall anywhere. I don't wish yeah. our Tar Heel get brethren. And, yeah, get out of here. And um, I mean, it's going to do some damage in Naples. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's a Category 4 hurricane. It intensified overnight. It's 140 mile per hour maximum sustained winds. Um, 
And Naples is not accustomed to having the Sarasota, Naples, Fort Myers area is not accustomed to having those sorts of hurricanes. It's kind of interesting that Joe Biden refuses to talk to um, uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida. I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not, but um, one of the FEMA directors wearing that cute little Patagonia vest they wear <laughs> when they're in dire need. You know, I mean, these folks like to parade around and show you how important they are with the um, with the FEMA logo on the Patagonia vest. So not only is she there to protect you, she's there to protect you and save the planet hmm. um, simultaneously wearing oh. that Patagonia vest. I don't know if you saw that or not, but the Patagonia founder gifted the company oh, to I some didn't. not-for-profit that is going to invest in saving the planet. Oh, yeah, I it, did it, see it's that, a yeah. multi-billion dollar company. I mean, it's a little bit hippie-ish. I'll tell you what McClellanville's famous for. You ready? You want me to give you a kind of a geography lesson? McClellanville is between Pauley's Island and Charleston. So here's what McClellanville is known for. You ready? Everybody from Pauley's puts their um, North Face gear on and eases up to McClellanville to get in touch with themselves and nature and shrimping towns, USA. The people from Charleston and Mount Pleasant put their Patagonia fleece vest on and they all congregate in beautiful mcclellanville <laughs> to get in touch with themselves now you know the, the people in charleston come in bmw and mercedes the people in paulie's you know volvos and you know you know what i'm saying you know where i'm headed here i mean it's um it's the planet saving crowd oh, in paulie's and the planet saving crowd I, i've never had the urge like I do when I go to the fresh market in Pauly's Island to just yell MAGA. <laughs> oh, I mean, I just want to run down every row of gourmet coffee. They'd throw a kumquat at you. Well, I'm sure they would, or a lobster tail, <laughs> you know, or a, or a cup of gourmet coffee. But I, when I go to a fresh market, and I don't go much, but when, when I do go to the fresh market in Pauly's Island, I just want to go down each row and yell <laughs> MAGA. They might throw an avocado because it has that pit in it. Yeah. Make it hard. Um, I, I want to set up a booth outside and sell these Red Make America Great Again hats. Oh. I mean, that's really what I want. I want to find the tackiest card table imaginable, park my pickup truck kind of on the curb in the fire lane, set up shop, and begin selling yeah. uh, Make America Great Again hats. They would hate uh, you. <laughs> hmm. and, and it's funny you mentioned McClellanville because when you say, and I think about McClellanville, I think about Hurricane Hugo. I yeah. mean, isn't that where? That's where it made landfall. Made landfall, and, and I remember the stories and that's the first time I'd actually ever heard of Lincoln High School. One of the one of the most telling stories that I can remember and recount is Lincoln High School. Um, they they were using it as an evacuation center. Once again, Rev, I think I mean I grew up here. I mean I've never lived anywhere but here, and I've got two different hurricane lives. I've got a hurricane life prior to Hugo, and I've got one after that. I mean I, Hugo made a believer out of me. Hugo made mm-hmm. a believer that your life can be in imminent danger if you're not careful. And, and I never thought my life was in imminent danger during Hugo, but, but the aftermath, you know what I mean? When, when you go to the beach and oh, you yeah. see, um, you know, just things torn to smithereens, you see basically the Point of Garden City cut in half, you know, by a storm surge. And then you get down around Francis Mary National Forest. I mean, I, I took time because I wanted to remember it. I mean, I took time in the road and you see the tree trees. after tree. I mean, I mean, it was unbelievable, the devastation. But the story, the humanistic story that I remember is Lincoln High School, um, a fairly poor and impoverished part of our state on the coast. Um, they used the high school as a evacuation center, and the water began to rise inside of the auditorium, inside of the gymnasium, inside of the, the school facility, and grown adults began standing kids on the window seals the four or five inch window seal and would hold their hand against the, you know, the derriere of the kid 
and tell them to hold the, the upside of the windowsill, and they would just kind of hold their hand there, hoping the water didn't rise anymore. I mean, that that's... Can you that's, imagine? Yeah, I mean, that that's just that's sad. I mean, mm. it's really sad that people had themselves in a position. And once again, I think prior to Hugo, we looked at hurricanes as... I mean, obviously, there, there's a reality there, and, and nobody's crazy. I mean, you accept that there's a weather event that you've got to be aware of and careful of, but Hugo changed the day. I mean, it, it really and truly changed our mindset and not only our, not only the mcclellanville and the and the school and i remember that story uh but i mean as far inland as the damage i mean I, I i had no idea that it would do to florence and sumter what it did and actually all the way into charlotte but but path. something remember that? Uh, okay but you heard um andrew dockery yesterday might have been jamie Arnold monday say that you know this hurricane is going to meet a lot of resistance when it's met when it finally makes its way onto land there are going to be some weather systems that begin to kind of weaken it um, slow it down. Hugo, kind of, um, the way I understand it, it's like a, um, you, you've seen the um, the salon or saloon doors that mm-hmm. just swing open, and it's almost like when Hugo made landfall somewhere between Charleston and Georgetown, most say McClellanville, um, it was just like uh, th- there was no resistance there, and it didn't weaken much at all by the time it got to Sumter and Florence and even into Charlotte. I mean, it even got up into Charlotte and, and did a lot of um, damage up there. But but it, it there were no prevailing weather force. There was nothing in the way of weakening it, slowing it down. That a buddy of mine lived in Charlotte. He called me like the day after and said, "Hey man, y'all okay? We're good." He said, "Good land." <laughs> I mean, you're what forty miles the way the crow flies inland. I said, "Yeah, somewhere thereabout." I lived in uh, Pamplico. I said, "Somewhere thereabout." He said, "Um, wow. I mean, this thing has torn Charlotte to smithereens. I can't imagine what it's like to be you know forty miles off the." the coast of South Carolina. But anyway, we'll get some clarity, we hope, from Andrew Dockery or our um, Jamie Arnold sometime this morning. And I'll ask the questions, you know, um, what happens if it does this? What happens if it does if it does that? These guys don't like to be dumbed down. I mean, this is their moment to shine, and they like to execute their plan under their, um, you know, their, their, uh, their control and their directive. And I'll throw them a, you know, kind of a, I mean, I asked a self-serving question yesterday. I mean, I did. I mean, somebody, one, one of our listeners caught on it when I said, hey, is it going to be worse here at the beach? <laughs> I mean, that, that was as self-serving as it gets. I, in other words, where do I need to ride this thing out, here or down there? I, I thought one of the most interesting questions you were asking the meteorologist is, okay, really, when is it we can count on the accuracy of your forecast? Yeah, well, I mean, they know this. I mean, they'll, they'll admit at this I mean, point, you don't know, but when is it we can start counting on what you're saying? I mean, their job is to freak you out and scare you to death right now. But at what point in time can you honestly say, okay, we've scared them enough. Now let's um, let's tell them where we think it's going to hit. But you're right. Some of the modeling does have it going further, a little bit further east. Um, you, you want to be on the clean side of the storm. I've learned this. I mean, the dirty side of the storm is the right side, kind of the front right quadrant of the storm i mean if you divide this uh if you take the eye of the storm and make a quadrant front center left center front rear right you know left rear right rear the the right front quadrant is normally the most uh the the worst weather i mean that's where all the rain and wind and squalls and potential tornadoes are so um any the if the majority of south carolina can stay to the left of the uh the eye of the storm uh we'll all be better off but we shall see how that works itself out. 843-661-0937. I want to say this before we take our break and we'll come back and delve into politics. I am fascinated by this um, economic story. This morning as we speak, I want to go to CNBC real quick. 
Um, now this the futures are down. Well, they were down 210. Now they're down 108. I mean, the market has a a, a futures opening of 29099. I mean, that's where it is today in real time. It's down, uh, you know, a little less than one half of 1%, down 104 points. Um, the the Bank of England is delaying a bond sale. Um, they're, they're temporarily suspending this uh, this purchase program in the U.K. I've got a, a kind of an interesting observation that I'm beginning to believe makes sense. Uh, remember yesterday I said, let's do this, Alfredo. I don't want to get too far behind. Uh, stick with me for a second because this is going to be the political issue of the midterms. 67% of Americans are going to vote in November on what? Abortion? No. Gay rights? No. The economy. It's the economy. And when people are nervous about the economy and uncertain about their financial future, they normally throw the bums out. So this is going to be, I mean, as bad as it is, it's going to be, well, it's good and bad. I mean, it's good that we believe the Republicans have a better chance to win, but it's bad that the economy is going through such a a, a state of turmoil. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. One of the most interesting stories that I've studied in a lot, we talked a lot about the Fed. Remember about a month or two or three ago, we kind of went down that rabbit hole of what the Fed is, what it does. It's this dark shadow. I mean, it's truly one of the masters of the universe. Um, there's a there's There was supposed to be a bond auction in London today. The Bank of England was to, excuse me, to have a bond sale. Um so some of these financing instruments and and programs, the market in the UK is in such turmoil, they are delaying the bond sale. Now, now, when you delay a bond sale, it seems to me there aren't any willing buyers. And there'll be willing buyers if you're willing to give a premium in interest. In other words, I'll buy it, you'll buy it, somebody will buy it for, you know, risk-reward, this risk-reward uh, proposition. But this is such an interesting story around the world. Um We've been living under a false sense of security and financial uh, behavior, and it's been normalized, and, and we expect this to go on forever. Um, I went back last night and read a lot about the Greenspan put. I mean, the Greenspan put was basically Alan Greenspan was going to intervene as it relates to monetary policy whenever he felt the markets were in threat or danger. I mean, he was going to be the friend of Wall Street. And I'm not saying all Wall Streeters are the same. Uh, Reggie Armstrong's not a Wall Streeter. I mean, he's a guy who goes to work every day trying to make good and prudent financial decisions on you and whatever amount of money you have. I mean, he's not a high-flying Wall Streeter. He's not a guy at a corner office at Goldman Sachs, you know, calling the Fed or some, you know, insider at the Fed wanting to know what their actions or determinations may or may not be. And I use the word fascinate. I mean, it's a very fascinating relationship. You mentioned that when I first walked in this morning, you said, this is so fascinating. You've been, and I, and I said, you're talking about the economy and you said, yes. And I'm like, that is an interesting choice of words. Fascinating is what you're, you're, that you well, are he, fascinated when you're reading. Here's the fascinating part of it. When you read Jerome Powell's words, now I'm trying to be eternally optimistic here because I believe the only way our country remains as the preeminent superpower is if we address our energy policy and we deal with our debt. I mean, if we're willing to understand with with some degree of of seriousness, the financial situation, this country, and for that matter, the globe's in. I mean, we can't handle international affairs. I mean, we can suggest strongly um, things. The dollar is still the dominant currency. So when you see a country, um, you know, the the strong dollar, why is the strong dollar bad? 
Well, I mean, if, 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 if um, let's say Germany, if Germany's borrowed money and the denomination of debt is the dollar, then their currency out of balance with a dollar that they owe a lot more debt. I mean, if you owe a dollar and the dollars were, you know, um, 60, give me a, give a one, you know, or a, uh, a, a pay, whatever, whatever foreign currency we're talking about. Um, the, the dollar has historically been that dominant currency in global markets. It is the, uh, it is the measurement of which we uh, interact international trade. So when the dollar goes up, your debt increases because you owe it in dollars, right? So a stronger dollar creates a lot of complications for nations. Now, now if you want to travel to the UK right now, you can have a big time. I mean, you take, a, you know, a thousand bucks to the UK and say, I want your currency. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, <laughs> the hotel rooms are cheaper when it comes to the, but, but this is not about international travel. I mean, th- this is about a global financial market that has been unbelievably inflated by bad monetary policy. And, and it seems to me, and I want to read some comments this morning, and, and I know we can get bored with this, but, but guys, this is so very important to all of our futures. I mean, if you are 60, well, I mean, if you're 70 or younger, and you, and you live to be 80 years old, the next 10 years of your life, and your, you know, the, the likelihood that you have some degree of financial security or not, I, I really believe this is, a, this is one of the, the crossroads. I mean, this is one of the forks in the road. And as Yogi Bear said, take it. And I'm, you know, waiting to see which fork we take. But when you go back and read what Jerome Powell has said, and I think Powell is admitting, well, without saying it, that I have been a lousy Fed chair. Really? Up until, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he'll ever publicly say, hey, I've been a lousy Fed chair. I think Powell is beginning to be reflective and understand how ridiculously insane it was to keep interest rates as low as he did for as long as he did and continue quantitative easing in a growing economy. And I think he understands that he's not solely responsible for inflating the markets and creating inflation in the economy, but he's largely to blame. And I think transitory is the word um, that he regrets using. And he said it more than one time. Now, we questioned Jerome Powell, um, and he's being attacked now for not being an academic. He's a lawyer. He worked at the, um, so some of these, I mean, he's, he's kind of, I mean, he's a student of monetary policy. He's a, he's a, a trained lawyer, an educated lawyer, but, but he's been involved in financial matters, financial affairs, but, but not in an academic sort of way. So when the Fed chair is a non-academic, some of these economists who are academics at the Fed, the 785 that we talked about extensively yesterday, they begin to undermine some of what he's trying to do. So I think that Jerome Powell, and this is complete and total speculation. I, I didn't call Jerome Powell last night. He didn't call me. Uh, we didn't we didn't talk about canceling a football game or not. But Jerome Powell has said things in the last couple of weeks that convinced me there's some degree of introspection that he's mm-hmm. dealing with, and that's the fascinating part about it. There is a real live human being who is the voice of either reason or not on on matters that will affect and determine the the, the financial future of the preeminent superpower on this planet. I'm not saying he's solely responsible for a monetary policy, but he's the person that, I mean, he's the face with a name. And Powell said, I mean, I went back and looked at what he said over the last two or three weeks, and he's been incredibly consistent. The first time in his um, career as Fed chair, he's been real consistent, and he's been unbelievably hawkish. And I went and read. So here's what Powell said uh, last week when he raised uh, the Fed fund rate by 75 basis points. He said, so for starters, people are seeing their wage increase 
their wage increases eaten up by inflation. So if your family is one where you spend most of your paycheck, every paycheck cycle on gas, food, transportation, clothing, basics of life, and prices go up the way they've been going up, you're in trouble right away. You don't have a cushion, and this is very painful for people at the lower end of the income and in and wealth spectrum. So what we're hearing from people is very much that inflation is really hurting. That sounds like a politician, but that sounds like a guy looking for votes or someone who's determined to right a wrong, to make sure he understands um, there, there's an inflation problem in America. And he goes on to say this. This is in another speech. Um, so how do we get rid of inflation? And as I mentioned, it would be nice if there were a way to just wish it not true, but there's not. There simply isn't. He, he says this. Um, no, excuse me. This is, a, um, this is a quote from an economist. The most important thing to remember is that inflation is not an act of God. Inflation is not a, catastro- a, castro- ah, cata- a catastrophe of the element or a disease that comes like a plague. Inflation is a policy. So the inflationary policies of the Federal Reserve under the control of Jerome Powell have led to um, a very complicated, and here I am with the word, fascinating political slash economic situation that our country finds itself in. And and when you go back, I mean, it's a, um, it's a bubble economy. Remember what I said yesterday, that in 2008, the housing sector got so diseased, it made everything else sick. I mean, the housing sector had pneumonia. I mean, double, triple, quadruple pneumonia, and it gave every other facet of the economy a serious cold. No, pneumonia in some places. Um, if you were in the mortgage-backed security business, if you were in the um, the underwriting of home mortgages, I mean, you, you were you were insolvent. I mean, you made some pretty risky bets without properly evaluating, and that's been kind of the norm, Rev, since 2008. I hate to be redundant here, but since 2008, we have strongly encouraged what, what I'll call a bubble economy, and the bubble is going to burst at some point in time. And I think Jerome Powell has accepted that this bubble is going to burst and it's going to burst on my watch, but I'm not going to drop the ball. I'm not going to give in to the CNBC crowd or the Bloomberg crowd or the Wall Street Journal crowd. I'm going to do right by America. Now, that's odd. And I can hear our listeners saying, no way. You're not selling me on that. I mean, there's nobody in that sort of position that is going to choose the rank and file American working class over those insiders who have established themselves as um, so forceful and effective in in making sure the Greenspan put stays in place. Because once again, Greenspan gained the reputation of you know quantitative easing, um, suppressed interest rates. Why? But because of the man on the street? No, but because of Wall Street. I mean, it was, it was very, very good for Wall Street. I'll tell you how good it was. Since the beginning of the year, American holdings of corporate equities and mutual fund shares have gone from 42 trillion dollars to 33 trillion dollars we've seen nine trillion dollars of wealth since the beginning of the year like a fart in the wind gone i mean does it come back ever again don't have any idea but but i'm predicting (laughs) okay we're really gonna pay you attention i'm predicting there's another 10 trillion out there that has to go away there has to be another $10 trillion of bubble wealth that, that really and truly was not legitimately created 
but it has to poof, be gone for us to get ourselves into a more sustainable um, metric of economic activity. Here, here's why it's interesting to me. You know, we talk a lot about income inequality. What is the driver of income inequality? Uh, what can we do about income inequality? Do Republicans need to even care about income inequality? Um, the top 10% of Americans have lost about $8 trillion of the $9 trillion in stock market wealth this year. That's a 23% decline in what, 10 months, nine and a half months. The top 1%, remember we've lost $9 trillion in corporate equity and mutual fund share um, loss of wealth. In other words, you didn't really have the money anyway. I mean, you had a, an investment in, a, in, a, in an equity or a mutual fund, and you thought it was worth X, and that was worth, you know, collectively or cumulatively $9 trillion less. Well, the top 1% have lost nine, excuse me, five of the $9 trillion in market wealth. I mean, it's not money in your pocket. It's not money in a bank account, but it's in a, it's in a portfolio. I mean, it's in an investment account that, you know, somebody, the bottom 50%, give me a number, Rev. The bottom 50% of Americans have lost how much in stock wealth since the beginning of the year? I mean, if the top 10% mm-hmm. have lost uh, $8 trillion, mm-hmm. the top 1% have lost $5 trillion. How much have the bottom 50% lost when it comes to what the market has done since January 1 until today? I would say $2 trillion. $70 billion. <laughs> $70 billion in wealth. Wow. I mean, that's how much okay. the man on the street, so to speak, has lost. $70 billion. Um, and that's why the screaming. I mean, these uber-wealthy people who have invested in companies and have seen their wow. investments That's inflated beyond, th- 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 there you go. I mean, th- this is kind of sort of where we are. This is, this is rigging the game. You know, when Trump says the game is rigged, okay, we, we concentrate on policy and abortion and gay rights saying, you know, are we going to invade and are we going to, how, how deeply involved are we going to get in Ukraine or not? No. I mean, th- this is the matter. Th- this is the meat of the matter, so to speak. When we're seeing this huge sell-off in Wall Street, yeah. I mean, if you're a rank-and-file worker and you've got a 401k and you've seen a decline in your valuations, I mean, of course it bothers you, it worries you. But but you're not struggling. I mean, and they're not struggling, rest assured. I mean, the richest 1% are still the wealthiest 1%, but their inflated net worth was because of this bubble economy. And I go all the way back to the Greenspan put. Greenspan was probably the biggest driver, and I've said this. I mean, give me a little bit of credit here. I've said over a year ago that in my evaluations and determinations, it seems that the Federal Reserve is the biggest contributor to income inequality in America. It's not Democrat policy. It's not Republican policy. It's not tax policy. Sure, tax policy affects how much of your money you're able to keep. Uh, re- regressive tax and progressive tax and yeah, I mean, we always have these, you know, should we tax someone who's a higher earner at a higher percentage than someone who's not a higher earner at a lower? I mean, that's always been a debate in American politics. Some, you know, uh, sympathetic to the government believe we should. Some say no. I mean, a flat tax or a fair tax would be a better way to do it. But nobody has affected income inequality in a policy way like the Fed has in its monetary policy. Let's go to the phone. Here's John in Florence. Good morning, John. Hey, Ken, I, I spoke about this a couple of years ago, but, you know, it's, I, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds like the the politicians in Washington need to get honest with the American people. And my my what I want to talk about is this and, and get your thoughts. So 
I know that I can't remember which president it was, but there was a time when it was illegal to own gold in America because they wanted to boost the 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 uh, the dollar. I feel like there's going to be a time when Americans are going to have to make us stronger, mean, meaning by we're going to have to contribute to knock down this debt, put skin in the game. And I think there's a lot of patriots that will, but then there's that argument that, that the Democrats are trying to break America as we know it. So my question is, do you see where it could come to a point in time where you know, we have to be honest with the American people and say, look, we're heading for this iceberg. But if y'all can, if, if everybody can chip in, we can turn this thing around and make America stronger. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? And I'll listen off the air. Well, thank you. That's an interesting point. You know, am I willing to be a team player? Under what condition? What changes is what, what changes are Washington going to make? Um, this is the end. Now, they may continue to try and implement and practice. But it's been proven now beyond a shadow of a doubt that modern monetary theory is a farce. I mean, it's phony. It doesn't work. I mean, there's no way to conceivably argue any longer that modern monetary theory does not have a draconian consequence to the American economy. So to the previous caller's comments, yeah, I think there's an appetite for, for, for patriotic Americans to say, I'll help with that debt if we'll shelve modern, modern monetary theory. If we'll get back to some relative, in other words, if we'll get to some action of responsible spending at the federal level. If you'll convince me that, that we're not going to spend a trillion dollars we don't have annually, I'm willing to chip in my fair share, whatever that may be. Now, once again, I think you've chipped in more than your fair share, but we've got a situation on our hands, so to speak, that has to be addressed in some way, shape, or form. But but if, if the narrative were being properly articulated and you wonder whether it ever will be, it would be the failure of Keynesian economist, the, the failure of modern monetary theory. And, and I've just got a hunch, and guys, this is nothing but a hunch I have, that Jerome Powell is beginning to see through some of this nonsense that we've been convinced deserves serious debate. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So when you say things like we don't really know what it's worth, what do you mean by that? What do you explain that? Well, I mean, if we've got if we've got a currency, and the currency, and Larry asked the question first of the week, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't think anybody knows what, what is the right, what is exact proper monetary policy. Well, I mean, is how many? What is a fair price for that shirt you have on? Well, I mean, monetary policy dictates that. What does it take to make it? What does someone have to pay for insurance for a uh, lease on a building? You know, an hourly employee, the transportation to get that to a can, you know, to a store online. I mean, the, the the free market dictates. I mean, price is the best arbiter of fairness in a marketplace. I mean, price will uh, set you free, so to speak. So that shirt you've got on today is worth something. The market decides what it's worth. Well, all of a sudden, we flood the market with $9 trillion, $10 trillion in extra liquidity. What is that shirt really worth? What is it worth uh, for, for an employee to work per hour? What is it worth for a shipper or a uh, you know the, the real estate agent that has the building listed, of which you're leasing space for $13 a foot? I mean, if the, um, if the, if the market sets a price and all of a sudden the market is distorted, not, not by a little bit, but by a tremendous amount. I'll give you an example. Um, there's $2 trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities on the Fed's balance sheet today. What is a house worth? What is a 2,000-square-foot house in Sumter really worth in the right neighborhood, in the right school district? 
you know, the, the, the previous owner kept it up good and nice. We know it's not worth 30% more than it was last year. I mean, we got to believe that's absurd. But all of a sudden, that's what happens. You know, somebody can get a 3.1% interest rate. And there's another, you know, couple of trillion dollars floating around in uh, in, in Etherland, you know, about uh, could, could you spend it on this or that? Sure. So th- th- that's the point I'm trying to make. To, to me, the Fed is so distorted, the free market, nobody really knows what anything is worth. And, and that's why I call this the correction of all the corrections. Is Apple really a $2.5 trillion company? I mean, it is if there's an extra $8 trillion floating around in the world and people are making investments in, in, uh, in, the, in the equity markets because they can't get a yield or a return in a bond or a money market or a CD or anything. But, but is Apple really a $2.5 trillion company? I mean, I don't know if they are or not. But, but you know it's got to be influenced by an extra, you know, $8 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet just floating around out there in the economy somewhere and in the housing market. I might have read this in the Wall Street Journal. might have been Monday. might have been Sunday. Um, the, Fed is trying to try to, uh, the Fed is trying to strategize on how to get this $2 trillion. How much is a trillion? It's a thousand billion. How right? much is a billion? A thousand million, I mean, just, right? Just stew on that for a second. So the Fed, as we speak, I mean, Wall Street is furious with the Fed. I mean, Reggie just said they've raised the rates quicker than any Fed ever has in American history. But they still, they're holding on their balance sheet $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities. I mean, they, they basically publicly funded or publicly guaranteed. I mean, I get Freddie Mae and Fa- or Freddie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I mean, it, we, we've just so distorted what the free market is. And... We, you know, when you look at the income inequality and the wealth created, is is it really wealth? I mean, if you own Apple stock and the Apple stock is based on a two and a half trillion dollar valuation of the company, what is Apple worth without that eight trillion dollars floating around? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. You know what I know it is? It's something less than two and a half trillion dollars. I mean, I've got no idea what Apple is worth. I do know what Apple's worth when. We have, you know, $8 trillion of extra liquidity floating around out there. It's worth $2.5 trillion. But what is Apple worth? And here's another problem that I see, and Reggie may or may not agree with me here. It seems to me, I said yesterday, I'll say again, if if you're in the financial sector and you're 40 or younger, you've never worked in a rising interest rate environment. I mean, we had in, I think in 21, we began for just a little bit. You know, it might have been 20. We began, you know, a quarter of a point, another quarter of a point. And we, we didn't even get to one point. I mean, the Fed fund rate was still less than 1%, but all of a sudden the pandemic hits and we'd freak out. You got to get back to zero. I mean, got to get this back to zero as quick as we can and got to start printing money and quantitative easing. We, we've so distorted what reality is. And if Powell wants to be revered and if Powell wants to be looked at from a historical perspective as a guy who really accepted responsibility for some of the mistakes they made and tried as hard as he could to make right on some of those mistakes he made, I think there's another $10 trillion of losses in the equity markets. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. I think everything's inflated by what's on the Fed balance sheet, which is about $9 trillion. And you got to pay that off before you even get to the debt. You know, that's what Trump was complaining about. You remember... He was saying, oh, don't do that, don't do that. He's thinking as a businessman to borrow money for 10 or 15 years instead of thinking about, we ain't never paying this off. But it, it just seems funny that 
going into 2008, the Fed balance sheet was about $700 billion. It had never been over then, a trillion except one time in American history in the first 100 years. Right. And then in 2008, it went up, you know, to a a couple of trillion, and then it, it got to Trump. It was four point four trillion when Trump took office, and it started going back down to three point seven. And I remember us having this conversation in February of twenty, and and I asked you what happens when the the government can't borrow money anymore and the Fed has to take over. Well, at that point, if you look at the Fed balance sheet around February of 20, it goes straight up. And as of right now, it's $8.9 trillion. So that's what Trump was complaining about. It actually, The Fed balance sheet actually went down from the time he took office until he he left, it got down to 3.7 from 4.4, but now it's 8 point. And a lot, you know, some of that, the first two was the COVID thing, but hell, we've got another, what, four on top of it that it just went, you see what I'm trying to say? I'm, I'm not trying to blame, I blame both of them, Democrats and Republicans. But it just when when Democrats are in in office and they're spending, it seems like the balance sheet keeps going up. And then when when a Republican gets in, it flattens out or even goes down a little bit. And then when they vote Democrats back in, they go straight back up. So I'm just saying we've got to pay off the Fed balance sheet before we even pay off the debt, and that's. We're we're in trouble. Well, let me I think. Mean, think is, thank you, Joel. Appreciate it. I mean, think think about this. If we're if we're unwinding about ninety billion dollars of debt per month, and we're eight trillion in the hole, I mean, we're somewhere there about. I mean, two two trillion of the eight trillion or eight point two five trillion is is um, mortgage backed securities. So so we're going to take off um what a, a, a trillion dollars a year. In I mean, we're we're unwinding about a trillion dollars in debt off the Fed's balance sheet. Look, everybody likes zero percent interest. Who doesn't want to buy a house at three point one percent? I mean, you can buy a bigger home. You can live a better life. Who doesn't want to borrow money at two or three or four percent? I mean, I was raised by a man who believed a, bar, a dollar borrowed was a dollar made. I mean, in all honesty, my dad kind of had this concept in life of if you can borrow money. I told Rev yesterday during the break. My dad convinced me that borrowing money and paying less than five percent interest was almost like making money. Because he believed he could invest back in his business and make 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 percent. So he was making money on borrowing money. But we've we, we've got to a point now, Rev, where the, the, the combination of that suppressed interest rate and 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 the, the quantitative easing, and by that I mean, you know, the Fed buying bonds or the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities um, and the Fed paying off debt that the federal government incurs – without having any tangible asset of which we're a, it's a broken model. Here's my concern. Um, is it broken so bad that it can't be fixed? I mean, you've heard me for 10 years. Nothing's forever. I mean, nothing is guaranteed. Who knows what tomorrow holds? I mean, if we gotten ourselves in such a financial quandary 
I mean, we admit today, I mean, anybody that understands it admits that there's no good answer. I mean, there's a less bad answer. And if you're Reggie, guess what you believe? You believe they need to pump the brakes a little bit on, on raising interest rates. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I just disagree with that. I think we've got to take our medicine and take it hard. And I think the quicker we get to a normalcy of interest rates and the Fed's balance sheet gets back under control, the better off the economy will be in the long run. Now, here's what I do believe. And, I, and I'll sound like a smart boy for a second here. Um, I believe that if we have a major credit event, Powell could blink. What is a major credit event? If one of our big, big corporations are unable to service their debt, it would not be like a Lehman Brothers failure or a Bear Stearns failure. But, but it would be, I mean, it, let's, I mean for, for argument's sake, let's just say General Electric. I mean, I, I have no idea what their financial standing is. But let's say that GE reaches out to somebody in Washington or somebody on Wall Street and says, hey, you know, our, our debt service went from X to X, you know, plus 25%. We don't have the cash flow to meet our debt obligations. That's a credit event that could force the Fed to say, wow. I mean, the, the, you know, how many businesses are selling subpar widgets but able to stay in business because they're borrowing money at two and a half, three percent. I mean, you're talking about LIBOR and all these other sorts of rates. I mean, how many businesses out there have been able to keep their head above water simply because their borrowing has been so cheap it kind of papers over the cracks in their fundamentals of business? I mean, zombie companies. How many companies out there have not failed, would fail, if interest rates go from two and a half, three percent to five and a half, six percent? A lot. I mean, a lot of companies will do that. So I do believe that if we have a credit event, if we have a big, major American corporation say, I can't pay my debt because of the increase in, in debt service, that, that could force Powell. Now, now, I think he should stay the course. I mean, I think you should let that company fail, let that company reorganize, let that company be merged or acquired by another company that makes a better widget that could make that a better company see we're real good at saying the public sector screws all this up but but the private sector is where the beauty is well there are a lot of problems in the private sector i mean there are a lot of mistakes made in the private sector and and the government's cheap finance and cheap interest rates have allowed some of these subpar companies to remain in existence because their debt service should be 500 million a year and it's 225 million a year let's go to the phone here is breeze good morning breeze Kitty, let me finish what you were going to say, but that won't hurt, hurt your buddy's feelings in Columbia. The reason the daggone Carolina, and the difference between Carolina and Clemson is, is Carolina is a bunch of leftists, and they're run by a bunch of leftists, and they hate everybody's guts to pay the bills. If it were up to them, they wish that the federal government would fully fund them, and they didn't have to answer to people like you, because they despise you. They just flat hate your guts and they wish you'd leave them alone and let them do whatever the hell they want to do with their leftist, daggone on fascist Democrat politics. And the next thing I'll tell you about what's going on right now, why would the people that intentionally created this mess for the purpose of doing exactly what's being done want to fix it? Why would you want to fix something that you intentionally created for this very purpose? Now, maybe the boy at the feds may be trying to save his legacy. I don't know. But I do know this, if I've got enough sense to know that everything they were doing was to create the problems we have today, they had enough sense. So I can only assume they did it on purpose. So why would they want to fix something that they don't consider broke because they did it on purpose? And, you know, another question I wanted to ask, how much influence do you guys have 
over to people reporting the news at the radio stations. But what I'm getting to is I've been hearing a lot of these people that are running in these state um, elections, you know, even for the federal position, saying that the local news reporters will not ask the Democrats any kind of tough questions other than what their favorite color is, and they aren't demanding debates or anything else. So, you know, we're sitting there worried about CNBC on the national level. I wonder what we're doing to that old hold the local newspapers, the local radio stations, the local TV stations news, news division, hold them accountable for their Marxist leftist policies. You know, because, you know, we may not have any influence over CNBC, but you know what? The people that subscribe to the Florence Morning News or the people that listen to the local news or the local TV station you can sit there and start calling in and say, listen, if you guys go to Dagle, keep Dagle just reiterating Democrat fast fascist uh, Dagle propaganda crap, nobody's going to listen to you either. So I just wondered what your opinion was on that. I know you might want to stay off the Carolina Clemson thing, like you said. <laughs> but why would but why would they want to why would they want to fix something they did intentionally? And what can we do to hold local news and the local news video print, whatever the hell you wanted, the local news people accountable? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, I'm not gonna bite my tongue on the Gamecocks. I said it earlier and I'll and I'll say it again. They were extremely proactive and 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 front and center in canceling a football game or rescheduling a football game. We can debate whether they should or not. I mean, that, that's a fair debate. They had to make a decision. They made a decision. The university made the announcement in a very proactive and matter-of-fact way. Where was that same resolve in addressing what Don Staley said and did? I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the hypocrisy of the situation. One was easy to do. It's easy to call and say, hey, we're canceling a game. We're moving it from, from Saturday to Thursday. It's hard to confront some of the realities, racism and wokeness, and and it so permeates universities all over the country, not just the University of South Carolina. So, yeah, I mean, as a, as a full-fledged fan of the Gamecocks, it is the height of hypocrisy to so proactively change and reschedule a football game and stay deathly silent on a women's basketball coach who I believe is woke and racist, and her comments, derogatory comments and actions toward a fellow institution of higher learning, and nobody at the university said a single word. I mean, if you can so aggressively and proactively reschedule a game, you can damn sure address what one of your employees said in, in, in such an egregious fashion about a fellow institution of higher learning. I was a Gamecock before I said that. I'm a Gamecock after I said that. I just don't wear garnet glasses. I mean, I try my best to call it like I see it. And um, I don't support the rescheduling of the game because I think there's too many unknowns there. But, but, but I understand it. I mean, I do understand why they felt that was a decision they had to make. I'm respectful of that. I would have waited. I would have tried to grind it out and figure out a way to play the game. But, but it's, it's just it's, it's totally inconsistent and hypocritical to do that but not do the other. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break, or will we? Well, I was going to mention to, to Breeze's last point there about the editorial content of the news. Yeah, we have news partners that provide our newscasts that run on the different radio stations in our different markets, and that's totally up to them. It's there under their total editorial control. I will say that I hope that when we have candidates, for example, or elected officials on the show, uh, that I think 
we do a good job of asking some of those questions directly. Now, we don't have a lot of Democrats come on this show, obviously, but, but you know, Ken will not be shy about asking direct questions well, I mean, we have three, of elected officials. We have three members of the delegation every Friday, and we take phone calls. Exactly. And we don't scrub. We, uh, there you go. We don't screen the phone calls. So, I mean, it is what it is. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. This is a very complicated matter. I mean, this is not typical radio show fodder. You would agree with that. I mean, Absolutely. this is not, you know, the president didn't call the governor of Florida about, you know, whether or not you're going to be available if we need FEMA relief or a natural disaster. I mean, the, the, the governor of Florida normally communicates with, or the governor of any state normally communicates with the president or the administration about, you know, what happens if we need you for this or that or the other. Uh, but, but this is so fundamental to our existence, to our lives, to understand what sort of economic situation we've gotten into and what I think, and once again, I'm not an expert. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Keynesian economist. I'm not a modern monetary theorist. I'm not a classical liberal economist. I'm a dude who put a key in a door every morning for about 30 years and tried to keep his head above water. That's what I've learned. That's what I know about the economy, economic activity. And I would argue that if we had more folk like that, we'd get ourselves in less positions like this. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning. I, I just took a bite of onion sausage. My apologies. Um, listen, I tuned in about the top of the hour. You were talking about everything goes into pricing. And I was listening to your formula, and I just wanted to really ask, I don't know what you'd call it, the stupid factor or, or I guess really the branding factor. Like a basketball in my hands worth anywhere between 12 and 20 bucks. You know, in, in Michael Jordan's hand, well, hell, it's worth a whole lot more, you know. Um, and I sat with a buddy of mine, and he was showing me his iPhone he spent over $1,000 for. And I got my little Android. He thinks that Android is a tin can with a string that runs off through the woods. I mean, he. And we were going back and forth, and he was showing me all the stuff his phone did. And I showed him all the stuff my phone did for 150 bucks. And nothing his did that I cared that mine didn't do. The, the very few things. Then he had the nerve to ask me if I'd pick up the check for lunch. And I told him he'd eat the apple off the back of that phone if he's hungry. Because, I mean, how do you, my point is, how do you factor that in? Because you said, well, it costs this much to make this, this much to make this. You got to get it there. You know, all these things, but you can go in any store and based on a name brand, I, I just don't see where some items that are 80% more, 90%, 120% more can possibly be that percentage that are qualities. Pricing, there's a tricky stuff to that, Ken. And how do you factor in the, again, the marketing, the branding? The, well, I mean, to, to me, Boudreaux, that falls, well, I mean, to me, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. To me, that falls in consumer choice. I mean, Rev has an Android, right? Mm -hmm. I've got an Apple. I mean, I don't know if my Apple's better than his Android. He don't know if his Android's better than my Apple. He's made the choice as a consumer. That's what he wants to, to, to do. I mean, you know, um, I, I just believe that recoveries and economies require um, a lot of complicit behavior. I mean, you got to have investors and producers. And, and, and once again, consumer choice is a big part of that. Um, the, the, the polo shirt. I mean, I grew up, that was a big deal. I mean, I was a country boy. 
And if somebody had a polo shirt, you thought they, I mean, the tobacco crop probably did better than it, than it normally did, or the, the corn crop did better than it normally normally did. I mean, if somebody was driving around in a new Chevrolet or Ford pickup, you know, the um, the, the farmers had made a little more money that year than they normally did. But, but you also saw farmers who never wore polo shirts, never drove new trucks. That was a consumer choice they made. So, yeah, I'm not saying all the metrics and measures of the economy are finite and limited to the realities of um, economic theory. I mean, consumer choice is not an economic theory. What are you willing to pay? Uh, I pay far too much to be a Gamecock fan, but that's a choice I make. Now, the market of Gamecock football could not sustain that model if there weren't enough meat. I mean, they, they know I'm paying too much, and I know I'm paying too much, but that is a consumer decision that I've made, and I don't know how you quantify that. I don't know how you measure that, um, but, but I do know that when you build truck beds for a living, it, I mean, that, that, that's my world. I mean, that's what I grew up doing and I understand, you know, what the demand and what the supply and what the, the complications of getting steel and the supply chain and, you know, property we own or property we have to lease or the price of, of fuel and all these other sorts of, of variables that go in. But every now and then, Rev, we'd come up with a, with, a, with a gadget or a gizmo that we could add to our truck bed. I mean, it may be a new tailgate, maybe a new toolbox, but, but the consumer would, would, would dictate whether they wanted that or not. And if we found out, hey, this con- the consumers really want that, we thought it was worth 200 it might be worth 350 Why is it all of a sudden gone from 200 to 350 Because the consumer choice suggested that to us. Everybody wants one. Well, if everybody wants one, there might be a way we can get a little more for that. Once again, that's consumer choice. And that is a matter of, uh, it's not a matter of economic theory, but it is unquestionably a variable that you've got input to put into the um, the devil's brew of economic activity. Let's go to the phone. David in Hemingway. Good morning, David. Hey, good morning, fellas. Hey, David. Hey, how's it going? Good. You're on the air. Hey, bud. Uh, I started listening to y'all about two months ago, and I just want to say it's a great show. Uh, but speaking on something somebody said earlier, why would they want to fix something they created on purpose? And I've noticed it seems like just as crazy as spending has been in the last, I'd say, 15 years, I mean, all together, uh, it really does seem like a lot of this is done on purpose. But maybe that's just me and a conspiracy theorist out there I've listened to too much. But um, when you talk about um, – Hello? I think we may have lost him uh-huh. when we're talking about whatever we're going, to, <laughs> we're going to talk about there. Well, I mean, let's let's use this as an example. Rev, you ever spent too much money? Of course. Did you realize while you were doing it that you were probably spending too much money? Probably. Did you keep doing it? Yeah. Was there a day that you said, I can't do that anymore? I mean, I, you know, I, you know. I mean, I, <laughs> or we, you look we, back and said, I can't believe I did that. Sure. I mean, so, so, so to say they did it on purpose, I mean, when we spend too much money in our household incomes, I mean, we know we're doing it. And, and we keep doing it. I mean, there's this compulsion, this emotion that we all have. Um, I can remember when I was younger, my dad had done fairly well in business, but I didn't have any money. I mean, I didn't have any money at all. But I was hell-bent on doing certain things with my family, whether I could afford it or not. My, my boys were younger. My daughter hadn't been born yet. Uh, I knew in my heart I didn't have enough money to go to Disney World. But, but I could make it work. I could be real creative and I could make it work. And you know what I did? When I laid down the night before we left to go to Florida in the bed, I knew in my heart it didn't make any financial sense. 
I knew it was going to be a strain and a stress and going to try and probably create a, a bubble in my life at some point <laughs> time that I had to deal with, but I did it anyway. I did it anyway. So to suggest that the government is the only entity or enterprise that has ever spent money it shouldn't have spent or spent money it didn't have, I mean, we've all been guilty of that, or the majority of us. I don't say we all have. Some are unbelievably disciplined and have always been disciplined. I mean, I'm much more disciplined today. You know why? Learn some hard lessons. I mean, as a 25-year-old, I, I didn't believe the lessons would be that ah, exclaimed, but but they were, and, and you learned. And, and I'm not saying that the federal government is all of a sudden coming to grips with its irresponsible spending, because Democrats are still wanting to pay off student debt and, you know, forsake the energy policy of the country based on, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but in restaurants in the U.K., because the U.K. is really bought into this green energy phenomenon. I mean, you know, they're depending on Putin to get the majority of their um, heating oil. So Putin will probably, you know, cut the tap off come the first cold spell of winter. And he'll argue that, I mean, I, I'm a humanitarian, but we've got to service some of these lines. We've got maintenance we've got to do to some of these um, some of these lines. Well, the, the restaurants and businesses, when you go to a restaurant in the U.K. and you complain about the cost of a it's early in the morning, a sausage biscuit. They are putting their power bills on the window of the establishment for all to see. So when they charge you twice as much for a sausage biscuit as they did three years ago, you understand why. In other oh, words, their, 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 their power bill was $400, and now it's $900 or $1,000. I think there's been a 330% increase in commercial electricity in the UK based on, you know, the European Union buying into this green energy deal. Um, and it goes back to what I've said, and I've tried to be consistent here. If we allow the Democrats to dominate the discourse as it relates to powering this economy, we will not be a superpower in 25 years, period. I mean, if we go the way of green and renewable energy, and we do what the Biden administration is arguing, and that is to emit zero carbon by the year 2035, we will not be a superpower. Not only will we not be the preeminent superpower, we won't be a superpower, and we've got to address the debt. We've got to understand that our fiscal irresponsibility and our, and our just ridiculous energy policy is going to fundamentally reshape the lives of our kids and grandkids. Let's go to the phone. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning, Ashley. Uh, good morning, fellas. I just heard you talk about uh, Putin cutting off the pipeline. I don't know if you heard anything yesterday, but the, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline was bombed. There's millions of gallons of natural gas going into the Baltic Sea right now. They don't know if it was bombed, Ashley. They know it, it appears to be intentional Theory. sabotage. Theory, yes. So the pipeline's kind of cut off. I think that's going to lead to some major, major troubles their way. Well, it's got and Nord Stream 1 and 2, and I think Nord Stream 2 was the one that they believe was intentionally sabotaged. And it's it's releasing however many metric tons per hour of natural gas. Natural gas a big deal with methane. I mean, I read something last night about that. But um, but but yeah, I mean, it, you know, that that part of the world became so dependent on Putin, they sold their soul to green energy, and um, you know, we got windmills didn't, and didn't President Trump say something about I mean, that? Anybody could see that, Rev. This is Breeze. He got point. laughed at. But I mean, th this is Breeze's point, and a lot of you believe this. I mean, if if, if somebody from Pamplico and Lake City can figure that out over a cold beer. Certainly some of these sophisticates of modern American politics and global politics can see this as well. Um, 
but but once again, Jordan Peterson sat down with Pierce Morgan. Let's do this if you don't mind. Let's take a break. I'm going to come back on the. Do I have a call? Okay, yeah. we don't have a call. Yeah. Let's take yeah. a break. I'm going to come back uh, out of this bit. We're going go. We're going to st- go straight to Pierce Morgan interviewing um Jordan Peterson. He's a clinician. He's an outspoken. I mean, I don't know if you'd call him a conservative, but he's a very thoughtful, intellectual, nonconformist. And he says things about the world that I think are very interesting and worthy of all of our consideration. So Pierce Morgan sits down with Jordan Peterson for about six or seven minutes. Let's play that on the other side of this break. Anyone thinks, you know, the notion that he's Hitler or Stalin, that's just foolish. I don't see any evidence for that at all. I mean, first of all, Hitler and Stalin were very singular types, and there's a bit of Hitler and Stalin in everyone, so, you know, there's some truth in that. Maybe there's more in the typical Russian leader A bit of than Hitler normal. in everyone? Really? There's more than a bit. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, why would have Nazism spread the way it did? You know, people think, well, that's all top-down. It's not top-down. There's, there's a part of people that are... All these people who informed on Kate Burblesing. Well, didn't Goebbels, didn't Goebbels say that the way to get vast numbers of people to go along with what you want to do is to terrify them? You, yeah, you, well, that you, you can you hold do that. A, a grip of terror over them. Oh yeah, but and in a way, that's what Putin's now doing with the Russian people, they, where he's he's going back now into a position of they're all trying to get us. They want to attack yeah, us. Yeah, they want yeah. to take us over. He's terrifying his people to rally support for what at the moment is a conflict he has started, which is not going the way he assumed. Well, the most um, what would you say, the wisest commentators on totalitarian states like, like Solzhenitsyn and, and many psychological mm. commentators, Jung was a good example of that, made a very s- straightforward case that you can't have a totalitarian state unless every single person is willing to lie about everything all the time. And you can think about that as top-down because the leaders lie too. Mm. And they also enforce punishments if you don't lie. But then you can also think about it the, the totalitarian spirit is replicated at every level of the society. And so in a truly totalitarian state, husbands lie to their wives and parents lie to their children. And the totalitarian state is actually the grip of the lie. And so, and, and people will certainly go along with that. I mean, I mean, I mean we're seeing that emerge here with cancel culture. It's like lie yes. or else. Yes. It's like, yeah, well. And the Russian people will be bombarded all the time with state media propaganda and will be buying into a lot of what Putin is saying. Yeah. How does this war end, do you think? We're going to find out this winter. Well, I, I, I know what I would do in his shoes. Mm. I'd wait till the first cold snap and shut off the taps. Right. Well, because of course he has, he's going to do that. He's got the control over the energy. Well, of, of course he's going to do that. He's already warned the West with his insistence that maintenance problems were necessary and the pipelines had to be shut down. Do you think he will down. use a nuclear weapon? If necessary, he'll use a tactical battlefield weapon. Even yes. if it starts World War Three, It won't. Probably. Why? Because we wouldn't respond? What's in it for us? If you let him do it and get away with it, where does that end? Then you are into a hit. Well, there's a lot. You can get yourself in a situation, no problem, where there's no good outcome. Mm. We're trying to do that right now on every front we can possibly imagine. Mm. We can easily get ourselves in a situation where it's hell this way and hell that way. That we're, that's highly probable. Well, should the Ukrainians give the Russians anything? When I was over there recently interviewing President Zelensky, what I was struck by was everybody I met in Kyiv, the capital city, 
were utterly resolute, don't give them an inch of our land. Yeah, well, I don't, I can't speak to that because I don't know what the preconditions for peace might be. But I do know that naive notions that the Russians are going to lose somehow, or that we're going to win, I, I don't, I just don't understand, I don't understand that. Well, what do you mean we're going to win? What are we going to win here exactly? Well, I guess a victory would be that the Russians retreated from Ukraine. With, with Ukraine in ruins. Right. Well, with, that, with okay, fine, that's a hell of a victory. Like, I think Putin could manage that because I think he could tell his people, and I think they might buy it. It's like, we accomplished our objective. We devastated Ukraine and we kept it out of the hands of the West. And that's not great. It's not what we had hoped for, but it's better than the alternative. And I think they would buy that. And I think when, when Putin went into Ukraine, I thought, well, I thought a bunch of things, which I, I made a YouTube video about that. People criticized like mad. I thought, okay, well, what's happening here? Oh, I see. His, his end game for failure is that, ru that Ukraine is left in a smoking ruin. Mm. Oh, that's a victory. So then he can lose with impunity. Right. So how can we win? We can't win against Vladimir Putin anyways, because you cannot win against someone you cannot say no to, period. And we can't say no to Putin because we sold our soul for his oil and gas. Mm. And we did that to elevate our moral stature in relationship to saving the planet. And so here we are yeah. facing a very dire winter, hoisted on the petard of our own foolishness and moral presumption. Mm. We're saving the planet. We'll see. I don't think so. It doesn't look like it to me. And this is, this is the most catastrophic issue here. Assuming that we're facing an environmental crisis of planetary proportions, which is not something I buy, by the way, assuming we are, well, then I would imagine that you would put in place measures that would ameliorate that problem instead of exacerbating it. But all the measures you're putting in place are actually making the environmental problem worse. So how is that even vaguely acceptable? And I look at that and I think, Oh, I see. It's just like George Orwell said about middle-class socialists 50 years ago. It's not that you love the planet. It's that you hate humanity. So, well, have at her, boys and girls. And we'll see what happens this winter. And it's very terrifying to me. It is. Especially here, you know, because your energy prices have gone way out of control. And that's going to hurt a lot of poor people. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly around the world as well. The world bank already estimated that we've put 350 million people into what they call a food insecurity. 350 million. That's three times as many as the communists managed to kill. Maybe we can manage that in a winter. But the planet has too many people on it anyway, so, you know, that's just poor people. But don't you sense a, a sarcasm? <laughs> I mean, don't you really well, sense that Jordan Peterson, I mean, Peterson's an intellect. I mean, no question about it. He's a, um, I mean, he's a trained psychologist or psychiatrist, but, but he's very intellectual. I mean, he's very well studied and well read. Um, th there are some videos I watch of his that blow me away. There are others that I scratch my head. He's a complicated man. You would expect a man who has that many and a variety of opinions like he does to be somewhat complicated. But, but the crux of his argument is at the end of the day, I mean, we're living in a, in a fantasy land if we believe we can do without traditional means of energy. I mean, that's the part I wanted you to hear. I mean, the, the Ukraine part, I mean, I, I've always said we're a little bit foolish 
to believe that at the end of the day we win in Ukraine because what does America win? I mean, Putin doesn't get to take a victory lap. He doesn't get to declare Ukraine his uh, province or his territory. But what does that change uh, about the construction worker in Detroit? What does that change about the um, the truck driver in in Savannah, Georgia? What does that change about the coal miner in Pennsylvania? Not a damn thing. Nothing. But it's highfalutin foreign policy and these think tanks in Washington that, that have so integrated themselves into our policy making and political process. But I mean, the, 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 the few things that do fundamentally matter to our lives, none of these are we getting right. That's, the, that, that's my concern as we move forward. I mean, I've got an opinion about abortion. You've got an opinion about abortion. I've got an opinion about gay marriage. You have an opinion about gay marriage. I've got an opinion about what I think the highest marginal tax rate should be. You've got one. We can fairly debate those. But guys, when we start borrowing trillions of dollars and start um, distorting commerce and, and capitalism in the, in the fashion and manner that we have, while simultaneously kind of sort of agreeing that we're not going to depend upon traditional means of energy. I mean, that that's getting some major, major issues on the table, and I think we're on the wrong side. I mean, I sincerely think that right now we're on the, the absolute wrong side of how to deal with our debt and what to do in relation to energy policy. Once again, abortion will affect some lives, not many. Gay marriage will affect some lives, not many. We can argue moral decadence, and I mean that, that, those are debates to have until the cows come home. But but right now, the two central issues that we better invest time, energy, and effort in is our securing and producing energy, and our ability to address our debt situation, because that will have a dramatic effect on the country we grow up in and live in. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. At 8.30, we'll have Jamie Arnold, Chief Meteorologist, WMBF. I mean, I hate it for the people of Naples. I honestly and truly do. And, and Fort Myers. And I mean, when you live where we live, this is the time of year. You just accept that there's a chance a hurricane shows up sooner uh, than later. But, uh, you know, it, it's still... It, it's still disruptive. I mean, there's no doubt about it, and it's unusual that one follows this course and this, um, you know, th- this pathway. But um, Rev said the last update as it relates to how we'll be affected has it somewhere um, in our neck of the woods. That's real sophisticated, isn't it? In our neck of the woods, Saturday, um, late Friday evening into the day Saturday, and out of here by um, by Sunday morning. But but there's a lot of uncertainty because. There is a steering current that will have a shearing effect. Sound like a meteorologist here. Yeah, listen to uh, that slows this storm down in Florida and dictates its eventual direction. So this cone, you know, and these squiggly lines, the European model and the the American model, and I'm not talking about Victoria's Secrets. I'm talking about these squiggly <laughs> lines that dictate where or where the hurricane. Uh, may go I'm so looking at the map for the 8 a.m uh, release from the national hurricane center it doesn't look uh, very different from this morning at okay. five or seven it still shows the center of a tropical storm 2 p.m friday right at the south carolina georgia border uh coming at, at that point heading north to northwest it's mid late september in south carolina welcome i mean that's just, <laughs> it's the nature of the beast this time of the year nearly every year um i don't know why but they've canceled the january 6th committee hearing uh fox news radio's tanya j powers is in our um is in new york city no threat of hurricane there i don't think so um tanya good morning how are you 
Hey, good morning. So why did we cancel the meeting, and what did we expect to hear had we not canceled the meeting? Well, the it was it was canceled because of Hurricane uh, Ian, uh, you know, bearing down on Florida. One of the members of the panel represents Florida's seventh congressional district. I think part of that's in Orlando, um, but uh, they said that basically they're going to, um, you know, announce a date for the, the postponed proceedings soon. They don't have one at this point, uh, but that was why it was because it was because of the hurricane um, coming coming in. Um, the as to what was expected of this, we, we didn't really, they hadn't, I don't think they had released a, a, like a list of, okay, here are the people we're expecting to testify. This was um, the first, you know, day of testimony again after, you know, what, a couple of months of, of not having those. The uh, ones that we were kind of have been, and they're still wondering about uh, whether the committee is going to call the former vice president to testify and whether, you know, he will actually you know, speak with them. Um, he has said he would consider testifying if he was asked. Um, he also has implied that there could be a constitutional constraint on that kind of appearance. I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that, but yeah, I know that's one of the people that they have said that they would like to speak to. Another person um, that apparently they have spoken to that her attorney has confirmed this is Jenny Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Apparently she has agreed to a voluntary interview with the committee according to what her attorney says. Um, they had been requesting information from, uh, you know, several people. One of those um, was former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Don't know if he's, you know, said yes or if he's going to testify or, or we're going to hear anything from him or not either. But those are some of the names that, you know, have kind of been uh, thrown about as to, you know, sort of the people they would like to speak to or they are planning to. Tanya, is this the last hearing? I mean, will this wrap it up, do we think? It is, is anticipated to be the last one before their final report um, on the findings and the recommendations that it's supposed to come. That's supposed to come by the end of the year. Um, but yeah, this was supposed to be the last, uh, the last bunch. Um, you know, we have heard them say, you know, in the past, um, you know, if there's if there's more stuff that comes comes out and warrants, you know, more investigation. Yeah, they have seemed to open to that up at this to this point. Uh, I'm, you know, assuming that if something else comes up in in the near future, they won't be like, no, no, we don't want to hear that. Uh, they'll probably be, you know, be open to listening to whoever wants to talk. But you know, as we've seen throughout the hearings of this, when you have people who come out and say, okay, this is what I witnessed, or this is what I saw or heard, or here's what was going on behind the scenes. That has led to more to other people coming out and going, okay, well, if they're going to talk, I'll talk, and here's what I saw. Interesting. Um, Tanya, thank you for your time. You stay safe. Mm -hmm. We'll do the same. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That's just kind of an interesting – I so desperately want to ask Tanya, what do you think Liz Cheney's up to? I mean, we know what she's up to, but I want to hear from a reporter in New York City, but she would never be offered (laughs) again as a potential guest on our show (laughs) or a contributor to our feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance, if I were to um, to ask that question. I, I, most of you have probably seen the news of Liz Cheney over the weekend, you know, sitting down with the, um, I think it's a Texas newspaper. They had a roundtable or a, uh, not a roundtable, but a gaggle of uh, politicians and politicos. And she said that she was going to do everything in her power to make sure Donald Trump didn't get reelected. She's going to campaign against Kerry Lake 
the Republican nominee. Yeah, no matter for, what Republican voters. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's ne- she's never been a Republican. She's always been an elitist and an establishment right. insider. So, um, you know, good riddance. Later, lady, is what I say. We've had enough of your globalist interventionist policies. It is kind of interesting when you look at some of the recent presidential candidates and vice presidents in the Republican Party. Every member of the U.S. Senate has endorsed Senator Mike Lee in Utah, except Mitt Romney. Hmm. He's absent. Now, there's not endorsements. There are supporters. He's got a list of supporters that include every single member of the U.S. Senate except his state mate in Utah, fellow Senator uh, Mitt Romney. And then you've got the former vice president's daughter who bears the Cheney name telling, you know, everybody in America that will listen, I'm out to beat Republicans. I mean, when the Republican Party decide to stop being an interventionist, globalist, China-supporting party, the Cheneys, Romneys, Bushes of the world had no use for us because, once again, that globalist, interventionist, pro-China party was real good for um, the Bush family, the Cheney family, the Romney family, and the American working class woke up and said, but it ain't been real good for me. And here's been the uh, the resituating of power within the ranks of the Republican Party. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. Uh, of course, Ken, first thing, uh, need to say for all our prayers today for the people in Florida and uh, hope that the damage is minimal and uh, that everybody can fare through it as, as well as they can. Uh, just want to give a recap. Uh, night before last, I was in Greer, South Carolina for an event with uh, Governor McMaster and uh, Lieutenant Governor Pamela Abbott. Uh, Secretary of State Mark Hammond, uh, we had 500 people at the Greer uh, train depot, just uh, first time I'd ever been to Greer, but just a beautiful old train station that had been renovated as a venue, and like I said, we had 500 people at it, just uh, energized speeches by the governor, and of course, Drew McKissick, our state chairman, he got everybody going, and uh, you know, our goal is to win everything, to retire as many Democrats as we can, and uh, whether it's in Marlboro County or Greer, South Carolina, you know, that's uh, what we need to do is just retire the Democrats and uh, take over everything. And like I said, it was just an amazing night and a beautiful venue and slam doggone packed. And, uh, you know, we're ready for November 8th. And uh, we are the party that's energized to uh, uh, retire Democrats and elect Republican conservatives. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it, my man. Um, I'm, I'm going to make a prediction. And this is just kind of a hunch I have from some of um some of the conversations I've had. Henry's going to win re-election. I mean, there's no question about that. Governor McMaster is going to be a uh, the governor of South Carolina for another term, but it's going to be closer than you think it is. I, okay. I just have a sense. I, I don't know why. I mean, something tells me. I mean, I've seen some of the abortion polling in South Carolina. I've seen some of the uh, some of the independent-minded women of South Carolina, in particular along the coast. You know, we talk a lot about Republican voters east of I-95, the transient population. Um, they're changing the culture of South Carolina. Some like it, some don't. That uh, They're bringing a new attitude and demeanor and mindset when they come to South Carolina. And I've just seen some of the polling and had some conversations with those who know more than I about the electorate in general in South Carolina. And, I mean, Henry's going to win. Cunningham has no chance to beat him. But it went from being a 55-45 kind of race to maybe a 53-47 kind of race. Um, It's not going to be 52-48. It's certainly not going to be 51-49. But I just have a hunch 
that it's not going to be 55-45. It's going to be something closer to 53-47. And in South Carolina, that's a bit of an underperformance. Now, is abortion the central issue of the election? No, it's going to be the economy. But how much credit does Henry get for the economy, and how much discredit does he get for the economy? When you look at the economy, don't we look to Washington? I mean, I'm asking. Now, the, the one thing Henry says on his commercial that I've heard Republicans take exception with, we didn't shut down. But we did. I mean, we didn't right. shut down for as long as places uh, across the country. We didn't shut down as severely, but we still shut down. So when Henry says, you know, while the rest of the country shut down, we didn't, they did. I remember the lakes and the beaches. I mean, that was a controversial And, and the restaurants thing. and the hair salons and all these other sorts of things that, um, that I was personally impacted as a result right. of. So, so when he says, you know, the rest of America shut down, we didn't, I think there's some people under their breath saying, no, that's not the truth. So, so I think what would have been, had it not been for, you know, so, some of the shutdown and, uh, and I'm talking about the libertarian vote. I mean, I just don't, that I don't think the, I think the libertarian vote within the Republican party is going to take a pass in this election. And I think it tightens that race a little bit. Now, once again, Henry's going to be the governor. And Henry, by and large, has been a good governor, but but he's he's you know that that he's going to be punished a little bit by libertarian, uh, the libertarian vote within the Republican Party, and, and I've seen a little bit of change in the independent female vote in South Carolina. Um, that you know just the 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 Dobbs issue, because once again, Reb, in gubernatorial elections, it's not about the economy normally. It's a it's a it's a state election. I mean, it's a statewide policy. What, how good is the governor? The governor doesn't control the economy. I mean, that comes out of Washington. The governor doesn't appoint a Fed governor or a uh, member of the Supreme Court. And I think we've nationalized politics. And that's really to the mainstream media's detriment. I mean, they've allowed – Jay Jordan asked me one day. I don't think Jay would mind me saying this. Uh, you know, when we get on the phone with some of the why, – why is that person frustrated with me? I said, they're not frustrated with you. They just don't have Mitch McConnell's phone number. They don't have Joe Biden's email address. Now, but they're frustrated with politics in general. And they're real bothered by the economy and the state of the economy and inflation. But but they they can call 843-661-0937 and talk to you, Philip and Mike, and have a, I don't want to say a confrontational conversation, but but get it off their yeah, chest. Yeah, they can vent. Yeah, they, they can vent and get it off of their chest a little bit. And I still think the politician that embraces that sort of interaction will be rewarded um, at the end of the day. I want to go to Henry's, uh, let me stop that. I want to go to Governor McMaster's public safety proposals. I want to be respectful. Um, we got to be dignified here on Wake Up Carolina. Um, Henry, Governor McMaster proposed the 20, and here's why, I mean, he's Henry to me because Henry ran for governor in 2010 when I ran for lieutenant governor. And Henry heard my speech a thousand times and I heard Henry's speech a thousand times. He could give mine frontwards and backwards and I could give his frontwards and backwards. He knew when I was going to give the six-minute version. I knew when he was going to give the eight-minute version. And I like Henry. Henry's a friend of mine. Henry loves South Carolina, and Henry's been a, big, a good governor. But I still think the race is going to be a little more competitive than, than, it, um, than it would have been had he not had to deal with the COVID and the Dobbs case not become a, a, a small part. I mean, if, if the Dobbs case were a big part, it'd be, it'd be a dogfight. I mean, you got a pro-choice Democrat and a pro-life Republican. If the Dobbs case were a big deal, I mean, this would be a toss-up. But the Dobbs case is not going to be a big deal when inflation and the economy are so dominant in people making their, their decisions. But here's something Henry did that I think is very interesting. 
Um, he made some public safety proposals for the General Assembly to consider. And this is as of, what, a week or so ago. Um, full disclosure, Mike Rickenbaugh sent me this and said, hey, I want you to look at this and give me your, your opinion, your take on it, because we we've had a lot of discussions about crime and uh, kind of the revolving door of crime. So Henry has a, um, a three-point proposal to address uh, violent crime. And I don't want to go through all the details, but one is close the revolving door for violent criminals. No bond for repeat violent criminals and career criminals. Offenders convicted of a violent crime while out on bond must serve an additional five years in prison on top of sentence received for previous crimes. I'll go to the second. Keep illegal guns away from criminals and juveniles. Um, one of the bullet points, increase penalties for second and subsequent illegal gun possession abuse offenses to felony offenses with enhanced penalties and mandatory minimum prison sentences, no bond, no early release or parole. There's a couple of other added elements here, but, but anyway, um, and then it gets to magistrate judges, raise the qualification bar, make the process transparent and accountable. This is interesting. You ready guys? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations on this show, and we will again Friday morning, uh, weather permitting. Uh, magistrate judges must be required to be a licensed attorney in good standing with the bar, certified in practice or certified to practice law in a courtroom, and should be screened publicly by the Senate, by the state Senate prior to confirmation. State senators should be required to cast a public recorded vote on each magistrate's confirmation. I'm not for that. I'm not for every magistrate judge in our state being required to be an attorney. I mean, the, to be a member of the U.S. Supreme Court, you don't have to be an attorney. Rand Paul, I've always felt, could be an interesting Supreme Court justice. He's not a lawyer. I mean, he's, a, he's an eye doctor, uh, but, but he's a constitutionalist. I mean, he's a self-taught constitutional scholar. He believes that government should be required to adhere to what the Constitution says. That would be kind of an interesting perspective to offer to the U.S. Supreme Court. So if you don't have to be an attorney to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, I'd be careful in mandating you've got to be an attorney to be a magistrate judge in South Carolina. But we do have to do something to hold these folks accountable who are obviously not being held accountable and simply not doing a good job. This is a starting point. And maybe this is what Henry had in mind. You know, let's swing for the fence. Let, to get everybody's attention, let's say that magistrate judges must be required to be a licensed attorney in good standing with the bar, certified to practice law in a courtroom. I mean, that, that's like, whoa, okay. Because I can tell you this, 80% of all magistrates in South Carolina aren't lawyers. I would argue that 95% of magistrates in rural South Carolina are not lawyers. I don't think they should be lawyers, but there's got to be a better way to vet. There's got to be more competency on that uh, on that bench or in that court, and there's got to be a, an evaluation process that is always ongoing and remove people from those positions when they're obviously not qualified nor competent to do the job. You have to take a test. I mean, I've heard this story. I heard it when I was on county council. Heard it when I was lieutenant governor. The number of potential magistrates who fail the test is staggering. Here's an offering. You ready? They don't have to be a lawyer, but they got to pass the test on the first try. I mean, I, you know, yeah. once again, I'm just trying to, I'm being pragmatic right. here. Um, if, if someone takes a test long enough and as many times, eventually they'll pass it. But, but are they competent? Are they qualified 
Do they have the necessary faculties to sit on that bench, to do that job, and to make really good and sound decisions? That's just something I would offer as an alternate proposal. We'll have a conversation about this Friday morning, but Governor McMaster is offering these public safety proposals. Now, he doesn't legislate. These are for the General right. Assembly to potentially but I'm glad consider to hear him or not. these issues forward. Well, I mean, you know, it's just amazing what Wake Up Carolina does when we <laughs> when we make our minds up that we're going to be the force du jour in Palmetto yeah, that's politics. It. That's <laughs> it. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Let's leave the world of politics for just a second and delve into the weather. Um, we're glad it's not making landfall to the coast of South Carolina, but we certainly do care, consider, and pray for the men and women in Naples, Fort Myers, some of the uh, Sarasota area on the west coast of Florida, the Gulf Pan, the Gulf Coast of Florida. Jamie Arnold, chief meteorologist at WMBF, is with us. Jamie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I tell you what, I'm good. But oh, tough news to wake up to, man, this morning with uh, Ian now almost on the cusp of becoming a Category Five hurricane. But Jamie, you guys told us Monday that you expected intensification. It went as planned. But it looks to me, after it makes land, it gets real confusing and muddled. Walk us through um, what we can expect over the next four or five days, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we definitely know Florida's getting hit. Uh, It's going to make landfall Category 4, maybe even Category 5 intensity there, as you mentioned. uh, Sarasota, Fort Myers, Naples area. That comes later this evening. Then kind of crosses slowly over Florida, so Orlando. Uh, likely getting into hurricane force conditions later today and tonight. And then tomorrow it slips off the Florida coast, probably between Jacksonville and Daytona Beach, does kind of pop back out into the ocean. By that point, though, it's weakening down to a tropical storm. Normally we would be kind of concerned with the storm coming back out over the ocean because it may re-intensify. Not so much the case this time. We've got a lot of dry air. We've got some wind shear that's going to kind of keep things in check. But then it sort of bends back towards the coast and probably comes back on shore. I'm thinking between Charleston and Savannah during the day on Friday. That puts us on the dirty side of it here locally. So we're still kind of holding to our forecast uh, rain. A lot of rain starts Thursday night through the day on Friday. Going to have some gusty winds. Still not seeing anything that suggests we get damaging winds, but could be some 45-mile-per-hour wind gusts at times. Uh, and a tornado threat, and even talking about some minor coastal flooding uh, during the day on Friday and into Friday night. Jamie, explain it in a way that we can understand it. Why does it go out into the ocean and then all of a sudden abruptly turn? I mean, I mean, you would understand it in a far more technical way than I would, but but it looks to me like once it kind of starts that easterly bend, why not? Why doesn't it stay? But something happens there that steers yeah. it back to the west. Something happens, and it's uh, it's sort of a push and a pull situation going on with Ian right now. It's kind of getting pushed into and across Florida right now, uh, thanks to some uh, upper-level winds kind of pushing it off to the east and the northeast. That's why it moves northeast, crossing Florida. Once it gets back out over the Atlantic Ocean, though, high pressure out over the Atlantic starts to kind of push it back towards the coast. So it's getting pushed one direction right now towards Florida, then it kind of slows down as that steering sort of collapses this weekend and then or uh, tomorrow. And then by Friday, it kind of starts getting pushed from the other direction. So a push pull and it just kind of wobbles its way back on shore. And that model will be updated another 25 or 30 times between now and the time it does what we expect it, it, it to do. 
It does. I think we're done seeing really big switches in the model. We're kind of getting into that, you know, 48, 72-hour time frame where any changes that we see are going to be pretty small. Uh, you know, it could fluctuate 15, 20, 30 miles, but no big, big changes expected from here on out. Jamie, last question. When do we expect weather to begin deteriorating in the Grand Strand PD area? And when do we sense that, you know, the, the worst is behind us and it'll start getting a little bit better over the weekend? All right. Uh, you'll definitely know something's going on tomorrow. It gets really windy even tomorrow. That's kind of out ahead of end. A cloudy day tomorrow. Not a lot of rain until late in the day. Thursday night, it starts to rain. It starts to rain a lot. And then the worst of it is on Friday. Uh, it'll feel like a tropical storm is coming through the area Friday with the wind and the rain. Good news is, though, it looks like things are kind of speeding up a bit. So I think the worst of it is probably over with after about mid-morning on Saturday. Uh, and we actually look like we probably salvaged a pretty decent weekend, which is a couple of showers and storm le- storms left. Uh, so Friday is kind of the day that we're focusing on for the worst impacts. Jamie, thank you very much. Appreciate the heads up. And um, you have been a valuable resource to our show. Thank you. Glad to help you guys. Have a good one. Jamie Arnold, Chief Meteorologist, WMBF. So uh, let, let me be let me be a hell hacker for a second. You ready? <laughs> you know where I'm headed. Um, so he says there's a pretty good chance of rain Thursday night. But the the clearing will begin midday Saturday. That's how I took it. Yeah, Friday's going to be. You know, we moved a football game from Saturday, Saturday. afternoon or midday to Thursday night. Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll just leave it there. I mean, you heard him. I mean, the the weather will begin deteriorating tomorrow during the day. You'll see a lot of rain late in the day. I mean, those are his words, not mine. A lot of rain late in the day. And once again, there's a difference in the Grand Strand Coast and Columbia. But the worst will be on Friday. And then by midday Saturday, uh, he didn't say we'd be back to business as usual and back to normal. But we will see pretty rapid improvement because things have sped up a good bit yeah, and I think after that. Whatever's left, the remnants, the, the center of the depression and the storm will be weakening and traveling through our area on Saturday, but I think the intensity of the storm is going to be you know, lowering and the, the situation, the rain, wind is going to be more but, intermittent. But the most encouraging part of this is once it goes over the ocean, you and I were talking this morning, once it goes out over the ocean, I mean, we've heard this reorganizing, reintensifying. You yeah. know, I mean, it gets, its, it gets its bearings back. I mean, the guy reforms and all these other good things. I mean, that's a little bit alarming. I mean, that mm-hmm. hadn't been on the table Monday or yesterday, and all of a sudden it being back over the ocean, you know, if you're a, um, a person who grew up in South Carolina or the deep South, the coastal areas of South Carolina, you're always thinking about, well, I'm reorganizing now. I don't like that. Yeah. that reforming of the wall, yeah. you know, the eye wall. It does not sound good. You know, we, 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 we know the terminology and we know all the lingo. We just don't know what it means. <laughs> the reforming of the eye wall. How many times have we heard that? <laughs> you know, I, I know exactly what it means, but yeah. I have no idea when it does and when it does not apply. But Jamie made me feel a little bit better in, you know, normally we have concerns about it drifting out over the ocean again. But um, there, there's so many other factors and forces that are causing. They did not expect that intensifying. And it will not allow it to reorganize. Mm-hmm. I mean, in essence, that's what he's saying. These other steering currents and, and whatnot. So it'll cut across Florida. It'll go out into the Atlantic just a bit. We expect it to make landfall again as a tropical storm around the Savannah-Charleston area and then kind of cut, I don't know, Rev, almost a 45-degree angle um, through the upstate of South Carolina yeah. at some point in time. Now. That's kind of what it looks like now. Now, it'll be downgraded from a tropical storm to tropical depression. Um, so there. I mean, that that's good news. Uh, unless you live in Naples, Fort Myers, or – and look, here's why I care about those people. I know how life sucks. 
when you don't have power. We've been there. And you can't find food. And you're worried about your family and your friends and your pets and your business and commerce. And, you know, your, 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 your family business is predicated upon revenue and you can't generate revenue with, with no power. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a very disruptive event in anyone's life. And yeah, I mean, of course, in, in the most selfish way imaginable, I'm much um, more happy that it's in Naples and it's in Fort Myers. But those are real people. I mean, they're living real lives and they've got rich people in Naples and they got people not so rich. They've got people with generators and people who don't have generators. So the same rules apply. And I think we all have a human obligation to one another to genuinely, sincerely care about our fellow man. So, yeah, I mean, I'm happy it's not the Grand Strand and Florence and Sumter and Orangeburg that are going to be so impacted. But it's still millions of people uh, who will have to kind of pick up and, and do the best they can to the next what? Um, week or two or three. Yeah. I mean, if it's a Category 4 storm, I mean, th- there will be people without electricity this time in three weeks. I mean, that's just the mm-hmm. nature of... Uh, the repairs. You just got hope that they've prepared. I mean, well, I mean Florida. Th- and this is a good chance. You know, when you look at the best of humanity, because we talk a lot about what's wrong with the world. Well, I'll tell you what's right about the world. There are there are power crews staging as we speak, ready to go help, ready to go aid and assist. Now, obviously, they're, they're premium pay and, you know, dangerous pay and uh, their government funds available to certain. But but still, I mean, the, 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 the notion that fellow man stands ready, willing, and able to go help fellow man in these situations and circumstances. And I got to believe there will be many, many, many power crews from South Carolina. Now, now they've got to make sure nothing stupid happens here. You know, Jamie said, you know, he didn't say nothing to see here, but let's not get freaked out about power losses and all these. But they got to make sure they take care of their own, you know, um, infrastructure, power infrastructure, power generating infrastructure. But once that kind of settles by Saturday, Th- those folks will be on the way to Florida, and they'll stay down there for a week or two or three, make good money, but restore power as fast as they possibly can. And the uh, I, I do have a live on-the-ground report. I have a cousin that lives in Sarasota, so I've been texting with him this morning just to see if they're ready and make sure everything's going to be okay. And he said everything's good at the moment. They have a lot of strong winds. They haven't lost power at uh, at his place yet. But, uh, of course, they've got uh, they've prepared the best they can. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's there. Then we'll take a break. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, great show as always. Uh, I they, I was shocked yesterday when I heard you uh, announce, Ken, that to everybody that you were not the premier dominator of opinions in uh, PD. I was absolutely uh, unbelievable that you would say such a thing. Because I I was pretty sure that you had uh, dominated the airwaves in the PD as far as uh, uh, political opinions and sports opinions. I do my best, but we have competing voices. I have there are people who don't like what I have to say. Well, I I, that guy you had uh, talking about the situation earlier on that uh, the economic situation and. uh, the craziness of things. I I think there's one thing that people forget and they kind of gloss over it is uh, not just us, but the rest of the world. And there's a lot of people in the world are dependent on relatively cheap food. And the only way you can get that is with uh, cheap fuel and cheap fertilizers. And if you cut off the fuel, you're going to cut off both. So 
it it seems like you could have the potential for putting a lot of people in starvation mode for no reason at all that don't need to be in starvation mode. And I know that most of the world, well, not most of the world, but at least a billion people are heating their houses with wood and dung, burning that just to keep warm at night. Uh, so uh, are these people thinking at all about the death and destruction these uh, fossil fuel policies are, are causing? Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a there, there's a there's a coming to Jesus, so to speak, on debt. Now, now I could be wrong. I mean, I tried to argue for an hour and a half this morning why I think Jerome Powell is doing the right thing. I mean, I am a I am a absolute hawk on the Fed. As critical as I've been to the Fed. As much as I'd like to abolish the Fed, I think right now today the Fed is doing yeoman's work and trying to restore some degree of sanity in our financial markets. Now, it's cost us $9 trillion in equity value. I mean, it, we, we've gone from a $42 trillion equity market to a $33 trillion equity market. I personally think there's another 8 or $10 trillion to go. Now, if you got a 401k or you got a retirement plan, you're 65 or, or 70 years old, and you draw off that retirement, I mean, you don't want to hear that, and I understand it. But, but you, you, you made 15% for the last 16 years when for the previous 100 or previous 90, we made about 10. And it really goes back to the point we've tried to argue, and I'm getting a lot of interesting texts from fellow businessmen and women about the economy and, and why I believe what I believe. And, and look, guys, uh, I'm, this is the most redundant thing I ever say. But, but I got to say it because it needs to be said. I'm not an expert. Don't, don't misinterpret my words for the, the opinions of an expert. I'm not an expert. I, I am someone who has lived in the real world. I've run a business for all of my adult life. I've been in politics and I host a radio show. I mean, that, those are my qualifications. I mean, that, that's the criteria in America that allows you to get over the airwaves and say what you believe. But I didn't lead you to $31 trillion in debt. I didn't lead you to a place where the Fed has, you know, $10 trillion, $9 trillion on its balance sheet, $2 trillion of um, mortgage-backed securities. Those are the experts. I mean, those are the ones that are duly qualified to, to elaborate or explain why they believe what they believe, whether it's classical liberal economics, whether it's Keynesian economics, whether it's modern monetary theory. Once again, take my words for what they're worth. I'm not an expert, but the experts have given you all of these situations that no expert knows what to do about. 843, I mean, it's the, it's the danger of an expertocracy. I mean, it, it really is, guys. Trust these experts at your own peril. I've said it, and I'll say it again. Um, I do believe, this is pretty arrogant, I do believe that I could come up with solutions for the Fed's problem about as easy as a 785 economist. I'd ask this, Rev. This puts you on the spot. Who would you rather have advising Jerome Powell today? Me or the 785 economist? <laughs> I know you. I don't know them. I'd have to say you. The devil you know is better than the <laughs> devil you don't. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So d during the break, I, I wondered, don't think it's funny at all. If if you had the opportunity to advise Powell on what the Fed should be doing, 
what would what would your advice be and the how same would, thing i told you during the break how would you deliver exactly the same way i told you during the break <laughs> that would be an entertaining conversation so, so rev asked me he said hey man you said that powell has all these economists and then he has you and he's not going to listen to you but if he were to ask you about you know hey do you have an opinion i mean i, I told rev i'd say you better raise them damn rates <laughs> And you better do it pronto or you're going to have more hell on your hands and you can say grace over. I'm telling you, this thing's going to get so hot. You've got all this money on the balance sheet. You're keeping rates at zero. I'm telling you, Captain, you better raise rates and you better do it now. Wall Street's going to be angry with you. We're going to see a big, big depreciation of the value of the market. But but you, 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 I'm telling you, we're going to have big, big problems in this economy if you leave those rates at zero. Um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I would have told and him. And he'd look at you and say, well, what language? Laugh. Can you put that in, um, in writing yeah, so I can understand it? what language are you it? talking, yeah. sir? and I would have texted it or tweeted it or, you know, written it down in some email exactly <laughs> as I just said to you. You better raise them damn rates. Let's go to the phone. Larry and Sumter listening to WDXY. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hello. Good morning. Hey, Larry. Good morning. Yeah, I kind of fell behind. I was uh, listening earlier when y'all was talking about McMaster's and his public safety suggestions. And and along with some of the other conversations, like he was talking about the um, the feds and and who they have on board that's advising him, economic advisors. Now all these people have degrees, and this is one of the reasons why it's gotten to the point that it has with these college tuitions, because Remasters is is proposing that all magistrates must have a law degree. Like, I thought this was a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Bam. Now you're talking, Larry. Now now you're talking my language. Yeah, most of the people I know don't have a degree. But that doesn't that don't make them any less uh, able to make good decisions, even judicial decisions. And and speaking locally, I would rather someone locally that's a common man looking at these cases. He don't have to be well versed in the law. Right and wrong is good enough and you should know from right and wrong who and who not to let out and that's, that's a danger to society. Yeah, you don't need a law degree to, to, to discern that. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. I was thinking about this. I got a lot of buddies of mine who are lawyers, and they're really good friends of mine. But if we believe the problem with government is we don't have enough lawyers involved, <laughs> you got a lot of convincing. I mean, it would be hard for me to convince Jerome Powell to listen to anything I had to say about the economic or the economic activity of the country and what to do in response or reaction to. Yeah, to convince me that we, and I and look, I, lawyers are important in society. I get that. I mean, we litigate. Uh, we are a nation of laws. They understand the laws. We, we process. We have a process of which we enforce those who break. I mean, I understand all of that. I just think asking every magistrate in South Carolina to have a law degree is not a government about the people. It's it's, a, it's another example of credentialism, and, and I just don't buy into that. I mean, we, we put too much emphasis on how credentialed someone is instead of how capable someone may be take a break back in a minute takes a lot of skill to multitask to the extent we are today balancing a torrent excuse me a hurricane uh, that eventually makes its way into south carolina we've got the fed we've got the economy we got inflation and now we have meta the parent company of facebook is pulling down about 1600 fake accounts which were spreading what they say is election interfering russia disinformation fox news radio's jeff manasso is out of harm's way as it relates to hurricane in chicago jeff good morning how are you i don't know about out of harm's way but uh, <laughs> just not in, in <laughs> you're not threatened by a hurricane how about that yeah good so, deal so meta 
Meta is saying that not only was it 1,600 fake Facebook accounts and, and, and other platform accounts, uh, perhaps Instagram as well, but also uh, more than 60 fake websites that contained links to Russian propaganda and disinformation about Ukraine. We're also told that researchers at Meta also exposed a, a much smaller network that originated out of China that attempted to spread divisive political content in the U.S. to affect the upcoming midterms. Now, they haven't given us, they haven't provided any examples as, as to what they're talking about. Uh, but it's interesting because the New York Times had a write-up back in June that the company's core election team that was committed to fighting disinformation, misinformation, election interference, and so on and so forth, was disbanded. Uh, and that the company remained really relatively quiet about its its election efforts, though we know that Mark Zuckerberg has also come under fire uh, on a couple of fronts for his actions, funding Democratic get-out-the-vote efforts, um, and you know, so much so uh, on the local on, on the the local level in, in which so-called Zuckbucks, in which you've got state legislatures, even governors, now um, writing laws to, to to ban so-called Zuckbucks. Uh, and and uh, also after Zuckerberg admitted uh, the platform's suppression in 2020 of the Hunter Biden laptop story at the direction of the FBI. So um, we know that Facebook has had some issues. Uh, it, it launched a gaming app a couple of years ago, and, and uh, next month it expects to shut that down, not successful. Uh, Zuckerberg has lost about half of his worth, losing about 76, so over $76 billion and, and moving him out of the top 10 richest. Um, so yeah, uh, maybe this is legit, maybe not, maybe this is PR, maybe not, don't know. Um, it's just how we think as, as reporters, but, uh, you know, obviously misinformation, disinformation is real, uh, on, on both sides. And if this is a legit, legitimate, uh, grab in terms of stopping, uh, Russian disinformation, misinformation, and, and even China, uh, good on them, but uh, we don't have any details to really support what they're telling us. Interesting, uh, Jeff, and, and I would imagine so, so. So Zuckerberg and Facebook are in the business of censoring disinformation. I get that. I mean, you can't lies. You can't allow lies to prevail. And and you know, I mean, some some of these debates are fair. Some are not so. Deba- some of these debates are not so fair. But but who ultimately gets to decide what is infra? I mean, it's easy to say Russia disinformation because the American people kind of rally around. Well, of course, we don't want the Russians, you know, disinforming the American public about what may or may not be true about an impending election. But but who gets to say whether or not disinformation is truly disinformation? Because when I go back to COVID and the pandemic and so yeah. some of the story or narratives around the vaccine, there was a lot of disinformation Um bandied about by our government not the russian not the chinese but but rather the american government yeah it seems like uh obviously the the, the company has the ultimate say but um in terms of the hunter biden laptop story zuckerberg admitted that it was the fbi that you know not so told him that you know this is this is misinformation so please suppress it and so he did also you, you brought up COVID. A lot of information uh, out there that turned out to be good information that was deemed misinformation. People were blocked. People were canceled uh, over that. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, the federal government has has, um, you know, ha- had had a role uh, in 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 those decisions. And so uh, it's interesting. I think the best thing you can do is to uh, to be radio silent on on uh, on, uh, on social media and, and and you know get out of there and get out get off of it. But um 
There you go. There you, there you go, my, my, my friend. You've got one opinion out of me. There you go. There you go. Thank you, Jeff. That's a, I, I always, you're, you're one of the few guests that I think I can usually get at least one opinion out. We won't tell if you don't. Fair enough? Thank you, brother. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that a lot. Uh, he's my guy. I mean, I really and truly believe that he's a radio show host waiting to happen. I mean, I, you know, it's just so, uh, I told Rev, when Manasso's offered, I want him on. I don't care what he's talking about. Because he'll let his guard down. You know what I mean? He'll he'll kind of, and he's got to be careful. And he's not misreporting. He's doing his job talking about the Russia disinformation story. But normally when you ask, okay, is it Russian disinformation they're after? Or is it just a, 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 you know, somebody not contrary to the narrative? I mean, it's easy to tell the American public, we censored this because it was Russian disinformation. What, what about American disinformation? What about the stories the American government told you about COVID that turned out not to be true? And the stories they censored that would have been helpful to, right. to the American citizenry. That turned out to be true in No some question cases. about it. We're categorized as disinformation, but turned out to be absolutely correct about what we should have done in response to COVID and the Hunter Biden laptop. I mean, Zuckerberg admits. I mean, he, he admits on the record that the FBI paid him a visit and said, hey, pump the brakes on this Hunter Biden story. that's not disinformation. I mean, we know now there's an investigation. We know there are incriminating, potentially incriminating material on that laptop. But Facebook um, likes to say, you know, it's the Russians and the Chinese that aren't to be trusted. I would argue it's a trifecta. I don't trust the Russian government. I don't trust the Chinese government. And I damn sure don't trust my American government. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, guys. So, Ken, you know, if you run over and kill someone and uh, then leave the scene in Florence, in the city of Florence, uh, your rump stays in jail. But, uh, you know, if you run over a young lady uh, serving her community as a paramedic and kill her, uh, then you get out and, well, excuse me, then you go in front of a magistrate instead of a city judge. You get out on a $50,000 bond. Uh, For most of our history, magistrates were directly elected. You know, Ken, if you are not smart enough to vote for a magistrate, then you're not smart enough to vote for city council, county council, state representatives, senators, and such. So why don't we just finally just pick a dictator, and he can appoint everyone instead of since we're not smart enough to elect anyone. We will never get real accountability with our magistrates, with any judge. But I'll start with magistrates. I think that's an easier place to start until they are explaining themselves and the decisions they make and the conclusions they come to every four years to you and me. Um, Now, making magistrates attorneys furthermore just proves that we are not a Republican state. We are a Democrat state parading around as a Republican state um, because everybody knows the South Carolina bar is nothing uh, but a Democrat safe haven. And the last thing we need is a bunch of men in suits um, thinking that, that thinking they're smarter than us deciding uh, these decisions. Uh, we need to pick our own magistrate. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I want to say this, and this is about as um, uh, this is about as insulting as you can be to a certain group of people. You decide whether you're in this group of people or not. The people that need political leadership are normally not smart enough to decide who it needs to be. 
I mean, the majority of us mm-hmm. that, that that are competent and diligent and prepared and take life seriously, I don't need political leadership. I mean, I accept it as a matter of reality. I mean, I do. I accept the fact that we've got a constitution that, that sets up a country's system of government, and out of that comes a president, a vice president, and you know, Congress. I, I would live my life a lot differently if I didn't have political leadership. I mean, I've got a value system that, that was, you know, taught to me at a very early age. So, so when you, th- I mean, people like you and I, Rev, I mean, you'd be in that same category. Mm-hmm. We don't agree on everything. Um, but but you don't necessarily need political leadership is there to a dictate how you need to live your life. Is there a difference between political leadership and true representation? Well, I mean, yeah, of course there is. Um, there shouldn't be. But the, 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 the definition of political leadership should be the inclination to do something because it's in the best interest of the people you represent. So, so they should be mutually compatible. They're, they're not. I mean, we, we've allowed them to drift, of, you know, I mean, political expediency and what's in my political best interest and what's not in my political. Better not do that. Have you read the polls? You know, I mean, uh, yeah, better do this. Have you read the polls? I mean, it's always that there's always a complicated situation. But I go back to the comment. I don't. I wouldn't live my life a whole lot different in an anarchy. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I've got, I've got a set of values and views that I believe in. I'm nearly sixty years old. I mean, they're they're, they're tested and they're tried and they're true. And I mean, obviously, when I make a mistake, there has to be some degree of accountability. But I don't need the political. I don't need political leadership. You know, suggesting that I live my life a certain way. Some people do. They, they, they lack the, uh, so, I mean, this is where it gets real controversial. Some lack the aptitude. Some lack the conviction. Some lack the commitment. Some um, some are just bad people. I mean, some are just, I mean, there's a few out there just, you know, hell-bent on doing the wrong thing for whatever reason. They just, you know, more times than not are going to do the, the wrong thing. So when you look at some of these um, these public safety proposals, no bond for repeat violent criminals and career criminals. Th- th- those are the people I'm talking about. I mean, it, 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 I've asked a lawyer friend of mine many, many, many times, and I'm probably boring with these questions I ask, but I want to understand their perspective. You know, are the people you deal with bad people or good people doing dumb things? And he said the overwhelming majority of good people who do dumb things. And it's a little bit humorous. It's not humorous because they got a problem on their hands. But you know, after sitting down with them for several, you know, visits and, and hearing their life story and where they come from and what they're about, you kind of you, you have a sense of hey, this isn't a bad guy, this isn't a bad lady. I mean, they've gotten a bad marriage, or they they got in a bad business deal, or they did something. In other words, but but the people that need political leadership are those who just simply can't control their lives. Those are the least. I mean, th- th- those are the ones that shouldn't be electing political leadership. So I'll say it again: those people who need political leadership are the least qualified to choose who that political leadership should or should not be. And I, I mean, I went on the record earlier. I'm not for what what Henry wants to do here with um, raising the qualifications of um, what it takes to be a magistrate or not. Jim is a purist. I mean, he may not be a purist on a lot of other things, but Jim has impressed me to be somewhat of a purist on how we should um, elect magistrates. He doesn't like the appointment. He doesn't like the hybrid. Uh, he doesn't believe it, um, it insists of accountability. And, and fairness in the system, and I, and I respect that. I'm not quite as pure as Jim is when it comes to magistrates. We, we've got to do something to get med- better magistrates in place, and, and you've got to have a, I mean, to me, Rev, you've got to have a, if you're going to be a magistrate, 
You've got to, or a judge. You've got to have a uh, kind of an internal personal commitment to doing right. And if someone breaks the law, you've got to have some, I don't know, a, a, a degree of introspection that that is a little bit instinctive. That, so, I mean, it's a little bit funny. Let's go back to what you asked me about the, um, during the last break, Rev asked me. So if 785 economists walk into the Fed chair's office, you, you know it's a real complicated conversation. And he said, let's say you're given the opportunity to walk into the Fed's office, you know, several years back. And this is not, I'm not Johnny come lately to this. I'm not armchair, armchair quarterbacking. I said it during the, we need to raise interest rates. You need to stop the quantitative easing and raise interest rates. Go back, I mean, we archived this show, go back six or seven years ago. I mean, I said there's no sense, there's no reason there, there, there's go, and we're going to cause conflict in the economy if we leave interest rates at zero. But, but we all have, have a, th- there's some instinctive quality in, of all, in all of us. So my instinct, I think, would have been just as sound as 785 economists studying, you know, and then trying to understand what does history say about this? What do the technical traders say about this? What does, you know, how did Wall Street respond to this? I mean, yeah, I mean, all of that needs to be taken into account and seriously considered. But, but I think all of us have to rely on, at some point in time, this instinctive quality that we have. And I think the most successful people in this world are those, we all have that instinctive quality. Most of us don't trust it. We talk ourselves out of what our instinct says is so true. So, so when Rev, and we say it a little bit jovial, but I, but I, would, have, I would have done it exactly this way. If Jerome Powell had said, walk in my office and close that door. Hey, man, you're not an economist. You're not a college-educated man. I mean, you're, you're from the South. Um, you're from a town with no stock. What, what do you think we need to do? And I would have said you need to raise them damn interest rates. Because if you don't, you're going to have a lot of hell on your hands, man. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, uh, we're going to see asset appreciation through the roof. Inflation is going to get crazy. There's going to be a day we got to get it back in balance and create some sense of equilibrium. And that's going to be an, an unbelievably challenging task if we stay this course. You know what I think Powell would have done? That's a different way of saying it. <laughs> Sounds funny when you say it. But, but, but I understand. But that's my instinct. That's instinctively. So when I read that Henry wants to make every magistrate in our state a licensed attorney, my instinct says, no, let's not do that. But we've got to do something. We've got to come up with a better way to put magistrates in charge and hold those people accountable. Jim believes it's elections. I'm not sure I do. It's a little bit like um, where we are in the economy today. Let's be honest. There are no good answers, right? I mean, it's not good to put the economy in a recession, but it's not good to allow inflation to be, you know, at historical highs. I mean, we, we all agree to that. I mean, I don't care where, what walk of life you in, uh, are in, what, uh, what occupation you have, how much money you have in your checking or banking or, or stock account. All of us agree that recessions are bad and high inflation is bad. But we've got ourselves in a position or situation where we've got to choose one or the other. We're either going to run this economy into a pretty deep recession or we're going to continue to allow inflation to outpace our earnings. That's where we are. I don't need 785 economists from all the prestigious universities around this country to tell me what my options are. The options are 
we either drive this economy into a deep recession or we continue to allow inflation to outpace the amount of money that about 75 or 80% of Americans earn. That's where we are. Give me a good choice. There is no good choice. That There's absolutely no good. So that's where we've got ourselves. Magistrates are a little bit similar to that. We, we got incompetence on the bench. What we've got too many, I mean, and a lot of this is the Senate's Leniency Act and the Obama administration. You know, my, my priority right now would be, can we at the state level exempt ourselves from some of the um, federal requirements about cases, you know, federal drug cases? I would imagine federal law applies. And, and you know, as much as I don't like that, I, I don't get to make the rules. I mean, they, you know, we're a nation of laws, and the laws say in federal drug policies, the federal legislation, the, the Senate's Leniency Act of the Obama administration kind of carries the day. You know, it, it doesn't matter how long I think that person should be in jail or what sort of bond I think that person, there are certain guidelines and, and parameters of which the federal government has said, hey, here's the law. You don't get to make up the law. You get to enforce the law. Um but there's no, I mean, to me, there's no real good way to put magistrates in place. If you elect a magistrate, I mean, do you really believe it's, it's good for magistrates to go out and ask business uh, businessmen and women for money so they can win an election? Is it good for the uh, South Carolina Bar Association to contribute X number of dollars to this many candidates or that many candidates? Or, or the, it really goes back to who we are as a people. I mean, the, the best magistrate is what? One who's honest competent, um, not motivated by favoritism. I mean, that's the kind of person you want making those sorts of decisions in a very realistic, pragmatic, and honorable way. How to get there. That's that's where it gets a little bit a little bit complicated. But um but I, I just don't like the notion or idea of every magistrate in South Carolina having to be an attorney. I mean I don't like them all not being attorneys if they're the most qualified uh, then put them on the bench. But but I think we're finding out now that magistrates have a lot of influence in who goes to jail, how long they stay in jail, what sort of bond is set for them to get out of jail. And and I, I don't think he'd mind me saying this. Law enforcement, I know the sheriff of Florence County is extremely frustrated, bothered, angry with the revolving door. When you make a big drug arrest, and you arrest someone for 534 grams of heroin, and that person is booked that morning, released that afternoon on $15,000 bond, that's 1,700 doses of heroin. That person does not deserve to do it, to be booked that morning and released that same afternoon. That is a bad decision by a magistrate. So we know we've got a problem. Are we truly and sincerely trying to find a solution. That's always the point in government. I mean, government's real good about it. Yeah, we got a problem here, and they do better than that. Okay, let's do it. Well, I mean, let's talk about it. Let's let's, let's form a Blue Ribbon Committee. committee. There you go. Let's form a committee. You know what form a committee does? It makes nobody responsible. You know, I would have done it had I been the only member of that committee, but I couldn't get these other four to go along. Well, the other, I could have, I would have done this had I could, you know, it, it, it allows people to shirk responsibility. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. uh, Is there a couple of... Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Neil. 
Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, and I just wanted to say, I, Ken, I am completely with you about them not having to be lawyers. I think there are plenty of great guys. I, just off the top of my head, I can think of some probably uh, retired deputies, uh, police officers who would be fantastic magistrates and probably wouldn't roll over and let the drug dealers uh, run free. But uh, my question to you guys, why, if they're county magistrates, why are we letting this? I don't know the history here in South Carolina. Why is the state senator appointing him instead of the county council doing that i mean that'd be one way to kind of bring it back down a notch make it more local um well i mean but but we live it and you know this to some degree i mean i can i you know we passed home rule back in the 70s but home rule was not home rule i mean it was home rule minus home rule i mean you know right we, we gave you some symbolic ceremonial home rule but we are a state governed by the general assembly i mean that you know and and it's hard to get people who have power to give up any of that power. And I've argued and will continue to argue, and I got a lot of friends in the General Assembly, the state legislative branch in South Carolina has far more influence over our state's policies than it should. Some will disagree and argue, I'd rather be governed by committee than one chief executive with the governor having more executive authority. But but I think in totality, a chief executive officer elected by people from Greenville County and Horry County and Sumter County and Florence County should have the right to kind of chart the course and future of a state as a whole than a than, than a um, kind of a um i don't know a discombobulated group of people who have a lot of varying interest yep i i i concur with that on i'll tell you what there's a lot of happiness here in sumter with uh, merle smith moving up from the house ways and means committee chairman to the speaker of the house because everybody and and i'm glad he's a good guy and i'm glad he's the person but the elation isn't isn't because of who he is, the personality and a person. The elation is because of the power that that has. Sure. That's just not right. Yep. He's just one guy elected from one place, you know. And and the same 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 thing happens at the federal level. You know, why does Mitch McConnell get to determine what comes to the floor of the Senate? You know, uh, you know, for the for the Republicans, it, it's it's just not right because you know you look at a contested state, one of those that bounces back and forth. Think about the election in Ohio. Well, a state like that that's contested contested gets punished because they never get the seniority they never get the strom thurman you know who's there in the senate for 60 years so anyway i've never that's, thank that's you a, neil appreciate it. that's kind of an interesting take i've never bought into the seniority system i mean i would rather government operate as a meritocracy it's a little bit like the nfl let's say you're the um you're the carolina panthers some of that would be our local team here you're, you're the carolina panthers and you've got a a 16 year offensive tackle but you drafted with the fifth round excuse me with the fifth pick in the entire draft a guy that is to play offensive tackle, but he can't play until this other guy retires. I mean, this other guy's in his 16th year. He's been there forever. He's done that. There was a day he was real good at it, but right now he's resting on his laurels. He's not anywhere near as good as he was. He's not effective for the team, but this first round draft choice has to wait his time. It's not his time to be on the ways and means yet. It's not his time to be speaker yet. And I remember in my, in my time in Columbia, I was real offended by the seniority system because it rewards not people who are good at their job, but people who have figured out a way to stay in that job for a long, long, long time. And, you know, I know Merle, and Merle was a good ways and means chair. Merle will probably be a good speaker. I knew Jay Lucas real well. Jay and I go way back. Um, Similar to that, uh, Senator Hugh Leatherman was chair of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, And, you know, Florence did amazingly well as a result of him being finance chair. But is that good for the state? I mean, if you are a member of the General Assembly, how do you balance that, you know, um, representing the, the home team 
with representing the state in general. And I would love to see a more balanced form of government where the General Assembly needed the president, excuse me, the governor, and the governor needed the General Assembly. The governor is simply making recommendations to the General Assembly. He knows, Henry knows there's not anything he can do about mattresses. That's in the hands of the General Assembly. But um, but that's kind of an interesting point. Should the, um, I mean, there was a day in South Carolina that the, well, when you had one senator, one county, the senator did a supply bill. I mean, he basically every single dollar that was appropriated to said county went through his office. I mean, it was, I mean, he's the king. And, and, and we're still, to me, a leftover of, and a lot of this is about, I mean, let's be, let's be gut level honest Republicans. A lot of this was about a potential African-American being elected governor. And that concerned some of the white racist elements within the, um, the General Assembly of days gone by. I think we're better than that now. In fact, I know we're better than that now. But I think governing bodies, and I don't know how to do this because I presided over the state Senate. So I had a pretty good view. I mean, I'm the guy pressing the button and saying, for what purpose does a senator from Sumter rise? For what purpose does a senator from Kershaw rise? I mean, I, I facilitated every meeting in that, in that chamber. So, so I had a pretty good idea of who needed to be making the decisions or not, but it never was the ones that were. I mean, some of the brightest and most dedicated and most proficient people in that chamber were junior members. I mean, they didn't share the ways and means. They weren't the ranking member on the finance committee. They didn't share the judiciary committee. Uh, and and I, I just think that's unfortunate because, once again, the left tackle that the Panthers draft with a fifth choice, I mean, if in the South Carolina General Assembly, that first-round draft choice would simply have to wait his turn. Doesn't matter how talented it is. Doesn't matter how dedicated it is. Doesn't matter how um, concerned he is about the, the, the well-being of the state. He's got to wait until this 16-year veteran decides to move on before he gets to play left tackle. Meanwhile, the quarterback's getting his brains beat out because you got a 39-year-old left tackle who may or may not be um, an NFL-caliber football player any longer. Meritocracies should rule in whatever walk of life we're talking about. And... Um, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. We're talking about term limits a lot. I'm rambling here. Stick with me, Neil. We're talking about term limits. I've had this debate with a lot of friends of mine who say, yeah, but I mean, if we do term limits, the government is turned over to bureaucrats. You know, if you got politicians in and out of there, in and out of there, in and out of there, they never understand uh, the, the local flavor or tenor of the state house. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got a, um, a, a lobbying agency or a consulting agency that know every nook and cranny of Columbia, know every nook and cranny. I mean, Washington would be no different. So, so that, that's the counter argument. I am a supporter, a fervent supporter of term limits. I still believe, once again, uh, I get the, the negativity. I, I get the fact that you would have consultants and lobbyists who have been there forever, who could mislead you know, a newly elected representative. I get all that. I mean, I accept that as part of the problem, but, but I still don't believe politics were ever meant to be a, a career. What if we... What if we did away with seniority committee chairs? I mean, what if anybody could run for a committee chair in Washington or Columbia? The first guy that shows up, I mean, if he convinces people in his party or not in his party that he's the best guy to run ways and means, in other words, he doesn't have to wait his turn. What does that mean, wait your turn? I mean, I've never understood, hey, you got to wait your turn. Really? I mean, wait behind this guy? 
I mean, I mean, I know I can do a better job than this guy, but I got to wait my turn just because he's been here longer than I have. I mean, that that's the system. That's the yeah, way it's designed that's, that's today. The political but, but it makes no sense. What if we term limited committee chairs? I mean, what what if what if I'm let's use an example. So what if the Republicans win control of Washington and uh, Mitch McConnell is Senate majority? He can't be Senate majority leader because he's already had eight years as majority leader. So you got to go find another one, a breath of fresh air, a new perspective, somebody who's not as entrenched in Washington as they were before. I can tell you what, it would term limit themselves because McConnell says, I'm not coming back to Washington if I can't be the majority leader. The chair of the finance committee says, I'm not coming back to Columbia if I can't be the finance chair. And you and you have a, an infusion of young blood. The, the day some of these senior members lose that chairmanship or a ranking member on those committees is the day they have no interest. They're not anywhere near as influential, that they're not as effective as they could be. And I think it would really lead to self-imposed term limits. I think if you took the um, the notion of committee chairs and said, hey, you can only be a committee chair six years, four years, eight years, whatever that number is. I don't know what the number needs to be, but we get to work on it. We're going to appoint a blue ribbon committee and everybody has some input on how long is long enough to be a committee chair. I mean, does, 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 does anybody believe that Chuck Grassley would go back to Washington if he were, you know, uh, sitting amongst all the other new members of the U.S.? If you sat Grassley and J.D. Vance beside one another, I mean, let, let's be serious here for a second. Republican voters all over this country, if you had Chuck Grassley and J.D. Vance, who would you want in a, in a role of leadership? I mean, doesn't Vance represent the the um the next version, mm-hmm. the visionary perspective of this new Republican Party? But you vote for J.D. Vance. What does J.D. Vance do? He goes up there and gets in line. And I'm going to tell you what J.D. Vance is going to find out. He's going to be incredibly frustrated. But but unless it's changed, here's what J.D. Vance is going to be told: Do what you're told, and there'll be a place for you one day. And that's absurd, the absurdity of that. That's why we've got to get some of these young leaders in positions of leadership. Who would you rather have? If the Republicans are in the majority, Rev, who would you rather have chairing the um, the Ways and Means, J.D. Vance or Chuck Grassley? Give me Vance. No, of course you would. I mean, you'd, you'd much Absolutely. rather see that fresher face, that new energy. All right, let me throw this at you. Who would you rather have as Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi or AOC? AOC. Yeah, I mean, I had. I mean, it works yeah. both ways, but, right? And you can't be hypocritical about right. it. You're right. you got to get a bit consistent about it. Yeah. Um, they believe that she's the future of their party, or some do believe she's the future of their party. So, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't, yeah, you can, but you'll get called on it. You can't talk out both <laughs> sides of your mouth and be inconsistent about those things. But the point I'm trying to make is if we term limited committee chairs and positions of leadership, those people who believe they're entitled, and it's almost a birthright now, to be the committee chair or the position of leadership, they'll go home. I mean, they're not. If you were the if you were the majority leader for eight years, and the next thing you know, you get replaced as majority leader, you're coming home. I mean, you don't have a whole. Oh, you're not coming home. You're going to Washington to be a lobbyist. That's kind of where you. That's the next yeah. step. Uh, and you got can't you wait too paid. long. Yeah, you get paid big money. Well, I mean, I don't know. Some of these senators are apparently financial geniuses because <laughs> they can take 180 grand a year and turn it into. 25, 30, 40, 50 million dollar yeah. net worth. So let's go to the phone. Richard in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Richard. Uh, good morning, y'all. Hey, Richard. I uh, just want to uh, comment on the, the, uh, the terms. Um, 
the length of them. I think they ought to run this thing like baseball. You can still be on the team, but, you know, you got to sit down and take a break every now and then. Put somebody else in. You know, somebody's got a fresh arm. Uh, but, you know, you may be a closer. You may be a starter. But, you know, we got a, you get a different perspective to the other team from a, from a new pitcher. And so that's the way I look at it. You know, run this thing like a baseball team. Thank you, Richard. You want to see the old geezers come home? Tell them they're not going to be in leadership. You want to see self-imposed term limits. You want to see a senior senator from Nebraska or South Dakota say, hey, I think I'm staying home. You know, I've had enough of the public service. Just start rotating positions of leadership. Give some of these young, bright, energetic, new faces of the Democrats. I'm not, excuse me, the Republicans. I'm not as worried about the Democrats. I'm going to let them sort out whatever they think needs to be done. But I think you have a better Republican Party and a better government when you don't have 80-year-olds chairing committees and setting the calendar. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Man, I really start getting in gear at about 8 or 8.30. I mean, I, it's kind of, I mean, we have two separate shows here almost. It's, um, I've read that the human brain takes about an hour and a half to wake up. I mean, when the body gets out of bed at 4.30 in the morning, it's about 6 until the <laughs> average human brain. Well, I consider myself to be somewhat different than average. I didn't say above average. So it takes me about two and a half hours uh, to get fully invested in the day to clearly understand um, where I think the... So do we have to apologize to people listening in the 6 o'clock no, hour? It may not be our best work, it, well, is I mean, that what you're saying? Well, I mean, they're not having their best moments of the day, I doubt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do, do you roll out of the bed uh, in, in high gear? So we're all on even plane. We're, we're, we're kind of all yeah. catching up together I, to embrace I believe that. A, a new day. But, um, but, but some of these last hours act like... I mean, it, it seems to me they take three or four hours, and some of the last hours really... Uh, fly by and some of these some of these issues are very i mean they'll take off and create a life of their own i mean i've got three or four or five different things in here i've got an interesting story on lake mead that we may talk about you know oh. the climate alarmists are saying that the reason the west is running out of water is the you know the 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 climate change um situation is not being taken as serious there's a report in Las Vegas and Los Angeles uh, that's about a week and a half old that says, no, we're just taking a lot more water out of it. <laughs> uh, it really goes back to you better raise them damn rates. Yeah. You know, I mean, th th there are some things that don't need a real scientific or complicated yeah. explanation. So we may delve into that tomorrow in Lake Mead and some of the Colorado River and whatnot. Um, they hired th this real profound professional investigative team to find out what sort of contributions climate was change or climate change was making to lake mead the colorado river and they came back and said we can't find any example of climate change but we are taking a lot more water out of that river the population increase in las vegas and hmm. los angeles we're taking a lot more water well, out of there that. could that be the reason <laughs> that the water level's down I mean, could Lake Mead not have as much water in it today as it did 50 or 60 years ago because they're taking more water out of it? Certainly that can't be the case. It's got to be far more complicated. It's got to be climate change. Sure, it's got to be, be climate change. And I, mean, I, and I saw a video this morning. Apparently, Don Lemon gets in an argument with an NOAA meteorologist talking about the storm, talking about the hurricane, and Lemon asked him, well, this this is a result of climate change, right? These intensifying of these storms. And he's like, I don't think you can link climate change to any one event like this. And Lemon's like, oh, yes, you can. I've lived here a long time. These storms are 
much more intense. Well, I mean, he's arguing with it. Lynn Lemon knows. I mean, you should listen to Don Lemon. Oh. I mean, he's the guy to be taken seriously yeah. in all of these matters. Climate change is a farce. I mean, I'm convinced of that. The business and industry of climate change is to self-advantage one group over another. Is there a fair debate to be had about how to regulate the emittance of CO or carbon? Yeah, I mean, of course there is. Sure. Is there a cleaner way to burn coal? Is there a more efficient way to produce gasoline? I mean, I hope there is. I mean, there are always innovative forces in entrepreneurial economies. So, so of course, we're going to always pursue better and more efficient ways to generate energy and power. But but the, the, the climate change being sold to America by Al Gore and John Kerry is a farce. It's, it's fantasy land. It doesn't make any sense. Um, they're asking you to believe that two plus two simply does not equal four. And when this report on the Mead River, or excuse me, the Mead, Lake Mead comes uh, to the experts, they, they push back. The L.A. City Council pushes back and say, um, apparently we didn't hire the right investigative firm. We didn't hire the right consulting <laughs> company because that's not the desired yeah, outcome. We, the wanted, narrative. we wanted you to come back and tell us that the Colorado River and Lake Mead are lower and and not you know not not generating enough water for all of these but they're high growth areas las vegas nevada and los angeles california are densely populated area that believe it or not take more showers and drink more water and when you strike more water there's less where you got it from imagine that enjoy your day we'll talk tomorrow